We're very, very fortunate to have such a great group. Thank you all. We're going to get started. I'm Dan Rundy. I'm a senior vice president here at CSIS. Uh, we're convening today to talk about how we can move, make progress on a hemisphere of freedom. Um, we're very fortunate to have some very distinguished speakers, uh, not just from the United States, but from the, around the world. Um, we're really lucky to have uh, S S um, Senator Menendez be here, who's the ranking member on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, who's going to be making some keynote remarks. Thank you very much, Senator, for being here. He doesn't stay on a Friday and doesn't come and speak on Friday. I think it speaks volumes about the issues. I think it speaks volumes about his appreciation for Congresswoman Ileana Russ Leighton, who is also here with us today. And Congresswoman Ileana Russ Leighton was the first Latina elected to Congress. She was also the first female uh, chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. And she has been a tremendous fighter for a hemisphere of freedom. We're also very fortunate to have Amb Ambassador Mark Green, who's the administrator of USAID. AID does tremendous work on these issues uh, around the world. And we're also here, lucky to have Carl Gershman, who is um, the, the CEO and the chair of the National Endowment, the, the CEO of the National Endowment for Democracy, which has been working on these issues before these issues were cool, if I can put it that way. So without further ado, I'm going to turn the floor over to Senator Menendez, and we're going to go directly into a panel conversation with these three distinguished panelists. Senator, please come on up. Well, thank you, Daniel. Buenos días. Un placer estar aquí, sobre todo con mi colega Eliana Roslettinen. No me quedo los viernes aquí, pero para ella sí me quedo. Así que, let me uh, thank uh, Daniel and uh, CSIS for the invitation to discuss today's theme: uh, how we can work together to advance freedom in our hemisphere. And as I just said in Spanish, I, uh, there aren't many things that will keep me in Washington on Friday, as much as I love this town, but uh, I would never miss an opportunity to honor uh, a truly irreplaceable congresswoman and friend in Ileana Ross Lettinen. Uh, she is just an extraordinary public servant, and we are going to miss her. Thanks. Let me also recognize Ambassador Administrator Mark Green for his dedicated work on democratic governance, uh, which is exceptional, and we look forward to continuing to work with him to promote uh, AIDS uh, mission, uh, as well as NED's President Carl Gershman, who is a tireless champion for human rights and democracy around the world. Thank you, Carl. Looking out across the Americas, I see a region of unique potential dynamism and growth but also mounting challenges. Today, our hemisphere struggles with two migration and refugee crises, including one that reaches our border. The region is home to numerous cities where per capita murder rates surpass those in war zones. And with consolidated dictatorships in Cuba and Venezuela and a fledging dictatorship underway in Nicaragua, it is fair to say that a future of robust democratic governance, prosperity, and the rule of law in America, in the Americas, is not guaranteed. The United States must play a leadership role in supporting the institutions that will allow freedom, the rule of law, and the democratic governance to flourish and pave the way for inclusive economic growth throughout the region. We will need more than three-word catchphrases to get the job done. We need to wield the full array of our diplomatic and development tools. That means fully staffed institutions and embassies, 
sanctions paired with real strategies, foreign assistance budgets that match our priorities, and an unwavering commitment to our values in our foreign policy. Unfortunately, despite nearly two years in office, the Trump administration has failed to grasp the importance of sustainable values-driven diplomacy. When our government denounces the deterioration of democracy in our own hemisphere, but ignores the brutal crimes committed by our allies elsewhere in the world, when we condemn Venezuela's humanitarian crisis manufactured by the Maduro regime, what we fail to take all possible steps to abate the humanitarian tragedy suffered by the people of Yemen, when we fail at the highest levels of our government to act with moral clarity and commitment to values, our allies and our adversaries take note. Our country's stature as a leader of nations flounders, and here in our hemisphere, the catchy slogans about democracy and human rights ring hollow. Overcoming these challenges demands we understand and respond to the truth of conditions on the ground. In Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua, that means grappling with complex realities in which evolving authoritarian tactics have enabled anti-democratic leadership structures to retain power. In April, Cubans awoke to find that their president wasn't a Castro for the first time in more than five decades. Uh, since then, we've seen Cuba's new leader feign alliance uh, to modernity, all the while firmly wedding himself to the Cuban Communist policy's antiquated agenda. We must be clear-eyed about his effort to rewrite Cuba's constitution. It may provide the minimal trappings of reform, but it ingrains further constraints on human rights and the fundamental freedoms of the Cuban people. Last week, Amnesty International published its analysis of Cuba's new constitution saying, quote, it maintains undue restrictions on freedom of expression. It stands to continue online censorship. It is unlikely to strengthen the independence of the judiciary or protect the right to a fair trial. And it continues to place undue restrictions on freedom of assembly, demonstration, and association. Those are the hallmarks of the ability to change within civil society the fundamental essence of any government. The ability to freely assemble, to demonstrate, and to associate without the fear that you will be beaten, without the fear that you will be jailed, without the fear that you will die. This is not a modern constitution. It's a sham that will serve purely as a framework for Cuba's dictatorship for decades to come. That's why earlier this month it was so important to see former Latin American presidents and leading intellectuals join in solidarity with Cuban democracy activists Jose Daniel Ferrer, Guillermo Fariñas, Berta Solel, Ivan Hernandez in defense of basic rights and individual freedoms, which are absent in this document being forced upon the Cuban people. And just as the Cuban government seeks to modernize its authoritarian control at home, we're learning more about its efforts to control citizens abroad, cultivating foreign government accomplices in this process. The government's foreign medical missions offers one horrifying example. An ongoing investigation by the online platform Diario de Cuba details how this program effectively embodies modern day slavery. Ordering citizens abroad 
to predetermined countries, the Cuban government then garnishes 75% of their medical workers' wages, denies them family visits, and negotiates secret agreements with foreign governments to keep them in indentured servitude. Alarmingly, this investigation showed how the Cuban government exploited the Brazilian government and the Pan American Health Organization, and I have serious questions about whether their participation constituted in involvement in forced labor and human trafficking. This is just the latest example of Cuba's ongoing effort to exploit regional dynamics and export its anti-democratic agenda across the Americas. Everyone in this room knows that nowhere in our hemisphere has Cuba's perverse tutelage caused more catastrophe than in Venezuela. For nearly two decades, the Cuban regime has benefited from a parasitic relationship with Caracas, exporting its repressive tactics and its ruinous strategies for guaranteed economic collapse in exchange for deep discounts on Venezuelan oil. Earlier this year, Moises Naim described Havana's role in Venezuela as one to decide to keep its allies in power by implanting Cuban police state uh, techniques like, quote, constant but selective repression, extortion and bribery, espionage and persecution. But this doesn't cover the totality of the Cuban regime's efforts. Earlier this week, activists presenting evidence to the OAS about the increasingly systemic use of torture in Venezuela noted that Cuban officials were present in a dozen cases. And while horrifying, I can't say that I'm surprised. Beyond Cuba's role in Venezuela, Nicolás Maduro and the criminals in his cabinet have led a campaign to plunder state coffers, destroy the country's economy, dismantle remaining democratic institutions, jail political opponents like National Assembly Deputy Juan Requesens, and drive countless other opposition leaders into exile. And they have done so with reckless abandon. Maduro has finalized Venezuela's 20-year transition from one of the most developed nations in the Americas to one gripped by political crisis and humanitarian tragedy. The United Nations has stated that more than three million Venezuelans have fled hunger, extreme poverty, and lawlessness at home. Unsurprisingly, the region is now dealing with a full-blown refugee and migration crisis, one of a magnitude that mirrors the Syrian exodus that has engulfed Europe in recent years, and one that requires a response of similar magnitude. That's why in September I introduced bipartisan legislation to forge a, co a coordinated response to the crisis in Venezuela. My bill would expand upon the assistance provided by Administrator Green and work with regional partners to address Venezuela's humanitarian collapse. It would require the administration to work with our partners to build legal frameworks for implementing their own sanctions. And it would require the Departments of State, Treasury, and Justice to develop joint initiatives to investigate, freeze, and recover the billions of dollars that Maduro has stolen from his people. There is no time for delay. And as we speak, it appears that Maduro is set on consecrating his fraudulent election and inaugurating himself for another illegitimate term. We must not let this farce go unchallenged. It is critical. Es increíble que eso que están huyendo de Venezuela, lo que están huyendo, no, lo que actualmente han tomado el patrimonio nacional de Venezuela, entonces están comprando propiedades en Miami. 
Eh, es increíble que nosotros no podemos seguirle las sanciones para asegurar que ellos no pueden usar eso en una forma con impunidad de actualmente poder eh, venir a los Estados Unidos y recibir el beneficio de, la, de lo que ellos actualmente han creado en contra del pueblo de Venezuela. That's why I pressed yesterday at a banking hearing, uh, FinCEN and others, about looking at this purchase of real estate by foreign entities and foreign nationals in a way in which they use it to cleanse their money. Lingering on the topic of illegitimate presidents, it is worth noting that Daniel Ortega could give Maduro a run for his ill-begotten money on running fraudulent elections over the past decade. We've long witnessed his slow and quiet campaign against Nicaragua's democratic institutions, co-opting the legislature, the judiciary, and electoral council. But none of that compares with the brutal wave of indiscriminate violence that Daniel Ortega, his wife, and Vice President Rosario Murillo have recently unleashed on the Nicaraguan people to the police and government-backed paramilitaries. In one case, his forces shot a 15-year-old boy, Alvaro Conrado, while at a peaceful protest. Among Alvaro's last words were, me duele respirar. It hurts to breathe. Think about that for a moment. The dying words of a child victimized by his government for exercising the basic right of free expression. Firing on 15-year-olds is apparently not enough for Ortega and Murillo. They have accused Catholic bishops of being coup plotters, their armed thugs even firing at a church as protesters sought refuge inside. Put simply, their brutality has stripped away any remaining veneer of democracy in Nicaragua. The United States cannot ignore such violence in our own hemisphere. That's why I'm pleased to have partnered with my friend Eliana Rosleten and led Senate efforts to approve legislation just this week that will hold Ortega, Murillo, and their accomplices accountable for their campaign of extrajudicial killings. Our legislation will ensure that U.S. sanctions target the Ortega regime without inflicting even more, more pain on the Nicaraguan people. It requires increased intelligence reporting on government corruption, and it offers much needed support for a negotiated solution to this crisis. Now, before I talk uh, uh, and end my remarks with a little bit more about my friend Ileana, let me just say we must recognize the deficits of democratic governance in Latin America extends beyond Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua. Something I think I'm so passionate about when I argue as the senior Democrat on the Foreign Relations Committee about our budgets, that the work of Administrators Green's uh, AID is critical to helping to move countries along so that we don't see a, black, a backslide in the hemisphere, to cement democratic institutions and governance as a critical element that serves its people at the end of the day. In recent months, Americans have witnessed not only the migration of asylum seekers on our southern border, but also, I think, a morally repugnant response on the part of the administration. The simplistic coverage of their migration and the characterization by the president of these asylum seekers as invaders does the American people no favor. We will not solve this crisis without addressing the root causes of migration, including the weak state of democracy and the rule of law in El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. If my choice, living in Central America, 
is to stay and die or see my daughter raped or see my son forcibly in, uh, put into a gang or flee and have a chance at living, I know what my choice is. It's going to be flee and have a chance at living. Citizens from these countries aren't just fleeing violence or extreme poverty. They're fleeing countries where their governments act with impunity and ignore and abuse their fundamental rights. When Hondurans see government security forces kill two dozen people protesting the outcome of a questionable election, and a year later not one person has been sentenced, what does that say about the future of their democracy? When Guatemalans witnessed the dismantling of a United Nations anti-corruption body, knowing that four of their last five presidents have been indicted for graft and money laundering, what does that say about governance in their country? When Salvadorians not only live in fear of gang violence and forced servitude, but know that less than 10% of crimes committed will be prosecuted and sentenced, what does that say about the rule of law? It is well past time that we address these core issues because as we've learned in recent months, aside from their moral dubiousness, and a, a, the policy of caging children and tear gassing families has not served as a quote unquote deterrent. We need robust US engagement that strengthens institu institutions, bolsters the rule of law, and builds a respect for human rights throughout Central America. We need strategies that will help create the conditions for inclusive economic growth so that citizens can find opportunities within their own borders. Threatening to cut off aid to Central American countries as the president is wont to do, seemingly against the advice of professional diplomats, will not address these causes, will not serve our interests, nor the interests of Central America. We must be honest with conditions on the ground and we must act with clear-eyed conviction of purpose. We cannot ignore inconvenient truths. Last year, the State Department sent Congress a report heralding the Honduran government's progress on governance and human rights at the exact moment that protesters were being killed in the streets. The kind of messaging is not only damaging to our credibility, but it weakens the prospects for reform. Similarly, when the State Department communications call Guatemala a strong counter-narcotics partner at the exact moment that Guatemalan security forces armed with machine guns are driving U.S. donated jeeps past the U.S. Embassy in an attempt to send a political message of intimidation, it belies the facts in front of us and only undercuts the rule of law. It is well past time we restore U.S. global leadership on democracy and governance issues in the Americas and beyond. If we are going to help those who have joined together from civil society and who we are trying to bring together in a common cause, then we must be the, not only the beacon of light, we must be the example at the end of the day. It's time for the administration to stop proposing cuts to the State Department's budget and the foreign assistance funding needed to effectively advance our national security interests abroad and promote our core democratic principles. It's time the Trump administration stopped threatening to cut assistance to Central America as a remedy to migration at our southern border when we know it will only exacerbate the situation. Nos hace falta tener un plan profundo con referencia a Centroamérica 
para realizar de que tenemos eh, retos con el tema de las maras, con el tema del narcotráfico, con la falta de instituciones fuertes que son necesarias para actualmente promover la democracia, el respeto de derechos humanos y las reglas de la ley. Pero si no nos enfocamos en eso, vamos a tener constantemente un fluyo de personas que van a huir porque su, su opción es quedarme y morir o actualmente ir y tratar de poder vivir y traer mis hijos a una nueva oportunidad. So, we need serious investments also in our diplomats who are the greatest problem solvers on the planet. Political pressure and sanctions are limited in their effectiveness if they're not reinforced by skilled, trained diplomats pushing hard-nosed diplomacy. If we're serious about resolving the crises in Venezuela and Nicaragua, we must act with the courage of our convictions and engage regional partners on diplomatic strategy to force negotiations. Of course, progress on these issues hinges on bipartisan cooperation in Congress. And I think when we do that as an example to those in civil society in different countries coming from different groups that in fact can find common ground in order to pursue their common cause. That's why I've always been pleased to work across the aisle with my dear friend, Ileana Rosletanen. Ili, as some call her affectionately, whose voice, don't, don't misunderstand her kindness and softness. <laughs> it has been said of someone else that she has a uh, iron hand inside of a velvet glove. So uh, her voice, her service, and her leadership will be very much missed within the halls of Congress, particularly on these issues. I've personally seen Ileana's tenacity in fighting for her community in Florida, but for those who are oppressed and discriminated against in promoting U.S. values, ideals, and freedom around the world. Her lifelong service, first as a school teacher in Miami, and then rising to be the first Latina elected to the United States Congress, has inspired thousands of next generation Hispanic leaders. A first-generation Cuban-American whose family fled the repressive Castro regime, she has a unique perspective on the values that truly make America great. A woman of many firsts, she was the first woman to chair the House Foreign Affairs Committee, paving the way for women in foreign policy leadership roles and being a consequential voice on the challenges facing our nation. For those of us who have worked with Ileana over the years, we know her as someone who never hesitates to cross the aisle to get things done. I'm honored to have collaborated with her on many issues throughout our careers, from speaking out against dictatorial regimes in Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua, to working together on meaningful legislation, such as the Libertad Act in 1996, and most recently the NICA Act. Ileana has been a champion on freedom and democracy. She has a keen understanding of the challenges facing the United States, the region, and the world. And I've always trusted her to respond with moral clarity, to speak out against tyranny, and stand up for what's right, even when it's not politically convenient. And I have to say, she's pretty great on Twitter as well. <laughs> and if you don't have a picture with Ileana, then you just weren't around. <laughs> Because if you haven't had one before you leave here today, there'll be a picture with Ileana, I can tell you. She is the most prolific picture taker of anybody I've ever known. She beats Cory Booker any day, so, uh, and that's saying something. So, Ileana, thank you so much for your commitment, for your work, and I know, as Daniel said uh, privately before, 
Eh, we're not going to let you fully go. Vamos, tomar, vamos a aprovecharte vamos a eh, en, en el futuro. Muchísimas gracias. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank Thank Wow. Let's get a photo. Thank you so much. Thank you, Senator. Wow, you can see why we wanted Senator Menendez to speak. Thank you very, very much. Please give him another round of applause. Wow. Thanks a lot. I'd like uh, Administrator Green to come up and make a few remarks to help frame the, the conversation. Please come on up. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. So I have the envious task of coming between two tropical storms, uh, Bob Menendez and Eliana Ross Lightning. Um, first off, thanks to Dan and CSIS for bringing us all together. I think we all recognize that this is a crossroads moment for the community of the Americas. Uh, on one hand, as Senator Menendez pointed out, we see optimistic signs in many parts of the hemisphere. OECD tells us that the Latin American middle class is expanding from 21% of the overall population in 2001 to nearly 35% by 2015. In Mexico, real GDP growth is upwards of 3% and Colombia's GDP has tripled in the past two decades. As perhaps a, a sign of its rising status and influence, this very day, Argentina is playing host to the G20. Yep. And over the last four years, Brazil has hosted both the World Cup and the Summer Olympic Games. But on the other hand, which is what brings us here, there are darker trends in parts of Latin America as well. As worrisome as any is the rise of violent authoritarianism in several significant countries. In Cuba, Fidel Castro may have passed away, but with Raul still pulling the strings at the Communist Party, his legacy of repression continues unabated. As Cuban democracy leaders and former political prisoners put it when they met with me on the margins of the Summit of the Americas, don't be fooled by the propaganda. Mm. Instead of reforming, Havana is merely mutating. It continues to crack down on civil society by harassing, beating, and imprisoning innocent civilians. Las Damas de Blanco, the ladies in white, still gather every week and walk peacefully to church to draw attention to the plight of political prisoners and violations of human rights. And every week, they're still confronted, harassed, and arrested by Castro's thugs. In Nicaragua, Ortega's regime is resurrecting old-style tyranny. He's reportedly authorized a shoot-to-kill policy against protesters. There's widespread kidnapping and extrajudicial killings and torture. Over 500 people have been killed since April. Thousands have been injured or imprisoned. And there is simply no greater tragedy in this hemisphere than a little further south in Venezuela. The Maduro regime is not only destroying that country's democracy and economy, but his dictatorship has created the largest cross-border mass exodus in the history of the Americas.
By some accounts, three million Venezuelans have fled their homeland. From violent crackdowns to holding some 200 political prisoners in brutal conditions, to unleashing hyperinflation, malnutrition, and basic medicine stockouts, they've inflicted unimaginable suffering on their people. But we're also here, and I call this a crossroads moment because there is reason for hope. Brave men and women in each of these countries have refused to give up. They have refused to give in, and therefore, neither should we. They've never given up in Cuba. Three years ago, Castro's people infiltrated Las Damas de Blanco, and they began a propaganda campaign against its leader, Berta Soler, in an effort to force her to resign. She's too clever. She surprised them by promptly calling for a vote amongst the organization's rank and file. You see, Castro's spies never anticipated democracy, nor did they understand it. And she won in a landslide. In Nicaragua, despite threats and violence and arrests, Roman Catholic priests continue openly to call for a peaceful end and a political solution to the terrible, brutal policies of the government. In Venezuela, despite all that has happened, democratic actors continue to resist. Civil society groups are persevering so they can record human rights abuses and help chronicle the depths of the humanitarian crisis. We're here today because we stand with these brave souls. We're here today because we refuse to be mere spectators. Our very first Secretary of State, Thomas Jefferson, perhaps more than any other man of his time, understood that in this hemisphere, what they then called the New World, citizens had devotions to principles enshrined in our Declaration of Independence. They had it in their very DNA. He wrote to a friend in 1823, America, North and South, has a set of interests distinct from those of Europe. Our endeavor should surely be to make our hemisphere a hemisphere of freedom. Hemisphere of freedom. How beautiful that sounds not only for a young United States but for our foreign policy at this crossroads moment. At the summit of the Americas our Vice President made it clear that pursuing this goal should be the heart of our policy. To drive the point home, National Security Advisor John Bolton recently described the regimes in Cuba and Venezuela and Nicaragua as a troika of tyranny. And he declared, we will no longer appease dictators and despots near our shores. And perhaps as a sign that he actually meant what he said, this week's action by President Trump to sanction two high-level officials from the Nicaraguan regime for human rights abuses and acts of corruption. USAID pledges to do our part for this great cause. When we recently learned that Cuban scientist Ariel Ruiz Arqueola had been imprisoned for disrespecting government authority and that his sister and sole means of support had fallen ill, our partners immediately fast-tracked 70 pounds of food and medicine to him in prison. And in Nicaragua, the U.S. is the largest and one of the only remaining donors still working on democracy and human rights, and we will make sure that that continues. 
and to help suffering Venezuelans who have fled Maduro, as well as support the communities which are giving them refuge. We've expanded our support to the countries of Brazil, Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, even some of the Caribbean countries to try to help. We won't give up because they won't, these heroes of freedom. Today I'm pleased to announce that we're providing an additional $750,000 in humanitarian assistance to political prisoners in Cuba. This will help facilitate... This will help facilitate information and help document ongoing human rights abuses. I'm also announcing an additional $4 million for Nicaragua. Good. This will be in the form of support to civil society organizations and others who are advancing democratic reform and human rights there. And then finally today, I'm also announcing that USAID is mobilizing more than $13.6 million in new funding for those fleeing tyranny in Venezuela. This will help provide much needed water, sanitation, hygiene assistance, and government-focused programming in Colombia, but all across the region. To be clear, we know, all of us know, humanitarian assistance is relief, not a solution, and not an answer. We know the answer must be human liberty and democracy. And we are fortunate to be joined by champions of that cause today. Senator Bob Menendez has been a steadfast leader for liberty in the region, especially on the countries that we're here to discuss. And then there's my friend and former colleague, Congresswoman Ileana ross Lightnin. She has been getting many tributes. She deserves every single one. Uh, I uh, mentioned earlier that sometimes when people come to me and talk to me about a new tropical storm in the Caribbean, I say, you mean Ileana? <laughs> she has been passionate. She has been forceful. She has been tireless. She has given hope to so many who had feared they had been forgotten or left behind. Senator Menendez's public service began when he was just 19 years old. And during his time in Congress, he has been a steadfast advocate for U.S.-Latin American relations. And as you heard, they have partnered together on some of the most important pieces of legislation affecting this region in a very long time. From different sides of the aisle, working to do what is important. I know as a former member of Congress, it is difficult to pass legislation. And yet they have joined together to pass key legislation at key moments in time. We will also hear from Carl Gershman, president of the National Endowment for Democracy, a longtime friend. The NED has been quite literally a lifeline for key groups and individuals in very difficult places. He has provided hope to those who truly thought all were lost. Today is an opportunity to hear from them. It's an opportunity to hear from you. Finally, I'll say that I, you know, I understand why some may fret about the challenges facing democratic values in the region. But we must remind ourselves, these authoritarians are not motivated by courage. They're driven by fear. Quite simply, authoritarians are afraid. They are afraid of their own people. They are afraid of democracy. 
They are afraid of freedom. They fear what we and all of you most treasure, a hemisphere of freedom. Yay. Thank you. Thank you, Administrator Green. Thank you very much. Congresswoman, please come up. We'd be so remiss if we didn't hear from you. Please, we want to hear from you. Thank come on you. down. Thank you so much. Thanks. Muchísimas gracias, Dan. Muy agradecida. Qué honor y qué placer estar aquí con todos ustedes. I'm so short. I don't, you just see my head bopping <laughs> on top of this podium. It's this floating head. Uh, pero de verdad, yo le doy las gracias a todos ustedes porque aquí tenemos en esta audiencia personas que están luchando en favor de los derechos humanos todos los días. Luchando en favor de democracia, luchando en favor de respeto uh, para todos los valores eh, que que Dios nos da a cada persona y ningún régimen lo puede quitar. Así que gracias a todos ustedes. And I've got, I've got to say hello to, uh, a special shout out to all of our uh, former IRL alums uh, who are the, uh, the defenders of freedom and now working in various agencies that be afraid. Uh, Yelem, Mauricio, Eddie, Golan, Juan, Jody, Jason, Sandy, I didn't get all of you, but thank you so much. You're all there. And uh, I am so happy that you have found a, a home elsewhere. Thank you, Dan. Pero estoy tan agradecida a esta tremenda organización. CSIS is just a, a wonderful institution, and uh, I'm so filled with optimism. Thank you, Mark, for those incredible words uh, of, uh, of non-deserved pr praise, but I'm, I'm deeply humbled by them. Uh, Carl, I can't wait to, uh, to hear from you, but I know, we all know of Carl's work because we see it all around us. Uh, those flowers of democracy and freedom uh, that are sprouting up uh, all over our hemisphere. But uh, special thanks to Bob. Um, Senator Menendez, as he told me, um, the Senate, Senate doesn't work on, on Fridays. He work, they work in their districts and in their states on Fridays, but he stayed for me. And I am just so, so uh, grateful to him for his many years of service uh, uh, for the values of, of freedom and democracy. I'm thankful for his kind words and for his dedication uh, to the fight of, uh, and, and John, there's another one of our, uh, our Hill, former Hill rats who's found their way elsewhere. See, I know I'm gonna skip so many, I'm gonna get in trouble. But thanks to Bob for his uh, fight for the people of uh, Nicaragua and Venezuela and Cuba especially. Uh, and as you heard from Bob, two days ago, just two days ago, thanks to, uh, to Bob's efforts, we finally were able to pass the NECA Act in the Senate, yay! Can we get an amen? I still can't believe that this, uh, this actually happened. We've already passed it twice in the House. Uh, they, it, it made it better. It got improved because uh, it's a stronger bill now, thanks to uh, Bob. Uh, it includes uh, language from his bill to sanction human rights violators and uh, corrupt regime officials. So now it comes back to the House 
for number three. We got to really pass it. You got to really mean it. And uh, maybe this coming week, Tuesday or Wednesday, pre please light a candle, um, sacrifice a goat if, if you're into that. But whatever it is, just let's make sure that we do it. Um, and, and I still can't believe it. And the, uh, the genius behind that, and I'm going to give a special shout out, Eddie Acevedo. Come on, Eddie, stand up. The NICA Act should be called the Eddie Acevedo Act. And Mark, you made a great acquisition when, uh, when you stole Eddie from us. I'm just so very happy. Uh, but qué honor estar aquí con ustedes eh, esta mañana. I'm so honored to participate in this discussion with, uh, with Mark, with Carl, and, and Dan as the, uh, the orchestra director. Uh, but Mark and I go way back when uh, uh, we served together in the Foreign Affairs Committee in the House of Representatives, and uh, I'm so glad to see Mark in the position that he is at right now. Uh, and having you, uh, a principled, visionary leader at the helm of USAID, has made an incredible difference. We have seen it in addressing new challenges, emerging challenges throughout the world, but more specifically, in Latin America. And one more thing that I have to say to you, Mark, you know, uh, tomorrow, eh, el sábado, uh, we will be commemorating World AIDS Day. And this year, we are also celebrating 15 years of success through PEPFAR. And this is a very ambitious, wonderful program uh, that was created by George W. Bush. He doesn't get enough credit for it. Shepherded through the house by, uh, by Mark Green. Um, and it's unbelievable the, the success we've had. Uh, and I'm reminded that when Mark served as ambassador to Tanzania, Mark, you wrote to me, and I still have it, uh, a letter highlighting the threat that HIV AIDS poses to the security of our country. We never frame it that way. And you said, quote, in tearing apart the social fabric and leaving a generation of orphans, the scourge of HIV AIDS could create a long-term breeding ground for radicalism, end quote. So thank you, Mark. You were a visionary, and you're so right. And Carl, you and I go way back as well. Um, he's testified multiple times before our committee, always highlighting the successes and the challenges that come with trying to strengthen democratic institutions across all regions. But thank you, Carl, for everything that you do, everything that your organization does in leading the way uh, and for also to shine a spotlight on human rights atrocities. And we need to do that. We want to talk about how everything is good, but we need to shine the light on these abuses uh, because that is the way that we get at the oppressors of the people, not just in Latin America, but Carl has been doing that around the world. So it's a tough job that you've taken on, Carl, and with great pride. And for that, I, I thank you so much. So thank you, Carl. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Dan of CSIS. And uh, as you know, maybe you've heard, I was born in Cuba. And, uh, and I came to the United States uh, uh, fleeing the uh, oppressive communist regime in, in Cuba when I was only eight. And uh, 
But for me, where I was born, it's not just a place in your passport. It has really defined me as a person. It has defined how I view the world. And it's through the prism of democracy, of freedom, of human rights, principles that should also form the basis of, of every strategic decision made in the name of US foreign policy. Those should be the pillars. That should be our guiding light. And you're all here because you also believe in those values. You also believe in those guiding principles. Because as the title of this event says, we want to see a hemisphere of freedom. Say it with me. Hemisphere of freedom. Amen. And as you know, unfortunately, there are too many rogue regimes who seek to undermine this goal at every turn. And little by little, we have witnessed how other countries throughout our hemisphere, Venezuela, Bolivia, Ecuador, Nicaragua, have taken a page out of Castro's playbook and have been systematically dismantling democratic institutions and continuing with their human rights violations. In fact, we see today how cooperation between these despots is increasing. They're sharing repression tactics, best practices of torture, best practices of repression, and best practices of how to stay in power. Specifically, we see it in Venezuela, in Nicaragua, whether it's through Ambassador Green's leadership in USAID in bringing humanitarian assistance to help the Venezuelan refugees. And let's give him a shout out for the help that he's giving. What three great announcements you've made, Mark. It's hard, it's hard to top that. Targeted sanctions against uh, regime officials of Ortega in Nicaragua, or reversing some of President Obama's misguided and hurtful Cuba policies, this administration has served as a beacon of hope for the people of these countries who are suffering under such repressive regime, regimes. But as always, the fight is far from over. More can be done. Our nation must play, pay close attention to this band of tyrants or as, uh, as Ambassador Bolton said, and Mark pointed it out, this troika of tyranny. And I think that that's going to be something that people will really understand, troika of tyranny, uh, that undermines our national security. It is of interest to us. It undermines the national security of our allies as well. So we've got to use every tool at our disposal to hold these regimes accountable. And unfortunately, other nations are, are following in these, uh, this troika of tyranny in the examples of these, uh, of these dictators. Evo Morales in Bolivia, he continues to change the Constitution, ensuring that he remains in power no matter what. Overpowering the opposition with violence and arrests. And this trend only emphasizes the importance of discussions like this one and the work that all of you are doing and not just these big shots up on the stage, but the big shots here in the audience. Each one of you is that ambassador of freedom. Uh, ultimately, it will be the people of Cuba, the people of Venezuela, the people of Nicaragua, who will bring freedom to their countries, who will be the political opposition, who, will be the, who are the civil society groups, individual citizens. They are going to be the change that we want to see. 
And although my time in Congress is, is coming to an end, I've, I've, I've got a, a couple of weeks still left. If we gave you my card, it's got an expiration date on it. But I hope that our guys, we're still hustling, right? We're still passing out cards. If you don't have my card, go see Angela. We're still, we're still working it. But my time in Congress is coming to an end, but I'm not going away because I am never going to stop working until we see a free and democratic hemisphere where human rights are respected. Así que muchísimas gracias. Muy agradecida de veras que le, le tengo que dar las gracias a todos ustedes por la amistad y vamos a seguir luchando juntos para que ese día de democracia, de libertad y de respeto a los derechos humanos llegue a cada pueblo en todos esos países. Muchas gracias. Muchas gracias. Muchas gracias. Qué gusto. Okay, Ileana, you can't, we're gonna, you, 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 after all this, you can't leave us. We still are gonna need you in your, in your new role, in your new life. So let's, let's get right to it. For being here, Carl, you, you know, I don't think we have to explain to this audience, but I think it's important for the folks watching on TV who may not follow these issues. Why, why should this region matter? Why should we care about democracy and human rights and good governance in the hemisphere. What, what are the stakes? What, why should we care about this? Look, uh, Senator Menendez made it perfectly clear when he talked about the uh, very critical refugee problems that are being created as a result of uh, democracy um, in Venezuela. Also, now there are refugees that are leaving Nicaragua. Um, but it, it, this creates a problem for us, and this is just one of the many, many problems uh, that is created. I mean, this is our neighborhood, our, our, our hemisphere. Uh, and when you have the kind of problems we have in the Northern Triangle in Central America, and then of course in uh, uh, Venezuela and Cuba, um, it affects us. Um, you know, I, I just want to say a word about Cuba. Uh, Mark mentioned that this constitution, which they want to bring to a referendum on February the 24th, uh, really is not, you know, any reform. They, they fake it, um, but it's really uh, mutating, and it's actually not mutating. It's actually getting worse. Uh, Article 5 of this constitution changes the old constitution, uh, which said that the, the Communist Party of Cuba was the guiding force. The new constitution that is going to be voted on February 24th says that the Communist Party is the only legal party. There can be no other parties. Um, it also says that the system there, the communist system there, is irrevocable, cannot be changed. Ugh. It's written in stone. So, I mean, this is, and they fake it, they fake it, the idea that this is reform. Uh, you know, Osvaldo Paya spoke at a memorial meeting we had for uh, Václav Havel in 2011. He sent the video because, of course, he was in Cuba. And he talked about fraudulent change, fraudulent mm. change. Uh, and that's what's happening now. And let's not forget it. Six months after he sent that video to us, he was murdered ah. by the Cuban regime. And Rosa Maria is here today is here? and is going to yes. be speaking to you at the next panel. Okay. And, uh, and I, it's just amazing to me how Osvaldo Paya's daughter has now emerged as a yeah. real leader uh, taking his yes. place. Yes. And Mark, 
and Mark, and Mark mentioned Berta Soler. And let's not forget it, Laura Payan, who yes. created Ladies in White, yeah. she yeah. too was murdered. She was murdered. She was murdered. Yes. Terrible. Uh, and there are many, many others, hundreds of others. Uh, you know, the, the Cubans don't do it the way they do it in Saudi Arabia, you know, which is pre pretty stupid, you know, doing it in their consulate, just killing this journalist. They do it very carefully with car accidents and poisonings right. and all these kinds of things. But they systematically try to get rid of their opposition. So, you know, and somebody said this morning, you know, that you have in these three countries, you have uh, one regime and three governments. I mean, it really is a single system, and we have to learn how to uh, counter this. Uh, and in each of these countries, in each of these countries, there are, it's remarkable to me, given the crisis in these countries, the economic, the political crisis, the repression, there is emerging really strong opponents, strong opposition. In Cuba, you know, next, uh, next week, they're going to have, uh, they're going to approve this decree 349, which tightens the controls over musicians, over artists, over performers. Uh, and there's real resistance from the autistic community, and there's resistance yes. to this change in the uh, Constitution. And in Venezuela, they formed uh, the Free Venezuela Broad Front, and they had a Congress earlier this week, and they came out with a whole program for reform. They're going to meet again on December the 12th. And then, of course, you know, you have the, the fake inauguration coming from Maduro on January the 10th, and that should be boycotted. And that's really, I'm, I'm very unhappy yes. that AMLO that AMLO has invited this fake ruler yes. uh, to his inauguration tomorrow because this, uh, this regime should be boycotted. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, in Nicaragua, the white and blue, uh, brought the white and blue uh, united uh, for na national unity. This is a tremendously important new movement for Nicaragua to get the opposition together so that they can speak with a common voice uh, and, and, and provide and have a voice in this country so people can know what the people of Nicaragua think. And we've got to find ways of supporting them. We've got to find ways of supporting the political prisoners in, in these countries. There are over 600 political prisoners in Nicaragua. Uh. And there are hundreds in Venezuela and Cuba. And we have to find, you know, make visible the faces of these uh, political prisoners. Who, uh, who and to get behind them and to seek their release. We have a, what we have to try to help them do is to connect them with people in support here, with people in Latin America, with the diasporas, uh, and to help them unite and, and to find a common way of resisting uh, these brutal dictators. And if we don't do that, our country, I think, is going to suffer. Carl, I completely agree. Thank you very much. Just in turn, it just, I get the sense that the bad guys are getting better at being bad, and that they're learned, they're sort of, a, a, a Congresswoman Ross Lighton yes. used the term, you know, sort of best practices, which yes. is, uh, you know, I, I, you know, you know of, of course, an ironic term, but an, an accurate term. We need to have the, the communities of freedom in these three countries working together, and you mentioned that. How could we do that better? How could we get these three, oh. the, the communities of freedom, to work to get together one, better? One thing, what's happening today, I think, you know, there was a time, uh, maybe 10 years ago, somebody wrote a book called The Dictator's Learning Curve. Uh, and The Dictator's Learning Curve was, and he's talking about Putin and some other of these, uh, what they call um, hybrid regimes, where you, know, you, you could keep power but being a fake Democrat. Um, and they have elections and they try to, you know, have fake, fake institutions. But what's happening now in these countries is I think they're, they've decided they don't have to fake it anymore. I mean, what you have is they're sending the signal that they're going to do anything that is necessary to hold on to power. 
That means even as this happened in Venezuela, destroying the country, or in Nicaragua, this didn't really happen before. Mark said killing over 500 people. Uh, I want to note, by the way, and I think it's a terrific thing that the OAS under uh, Luis Almagro created this tribunal uh, which recommended to the International Criminal Court that they investigate Venezuela, which, where they said there is reason to believe that they are guilty of crimes against humanity and to bring the case of Venezuela before the International Criminal Court. And they had justices like Erwin Kotler from Canada and Santiago Canton from Argentina on this tribunal, and that has now been sent to the uh, criminal court. And you have five Latin American countries plus Canada have now formally presented this, this case to the International Criminal Court. That's what has to be done. We have to take new and co creative actions uh, to hold these regimes accountable and then to mobilize support and to support the people in these countries because ultimately the liberation is going to come from them. Thank you. Thanks, Carl. Thanks very, very much. So, Ileana, uh, thank you again for your tireless thank efforts. You, you, what makes you optimistic? There's a, there's a, we could, you could leave this conversation being depressed or kind of down because there's, these these bad these bad folks are real bad bad people, and they've just you know and they have um, they will do anything to stay in power. So what makes you optimistic? I am so optimistic, and you know Carl had mentioned uh, uh, this group in Nicaragua, it's La Unión Nacional de Azul y Blanco, and it's bringing all of these factions together, and uh, at, you know not this group and that group, but everybody united. And, uh, and that's the key to success. I am very optimistic. We see, look, Frank Calzone, thank you for putting this, this incredible. Everyone's got to get this. this Women is under repression in Women Cuba. Women under repression in Cuba, Center for a Free Cuba, just an incredible document. But not only are these brave uh, Cuban women a, a, a ray of hope, and, and Carl had mentioned some of them specifically, but we also have some, the newer generation of, uh, of Cuban dissidents, and a lot of them coming from the artistic community. And there's one young man, Michael Castillo, and he has, uh, he has sewn his lips uh, as a, as a oh. symbolic representation of, uh, of what the Castro regime wants to do uh, to, uh, to silence him. So there's a ray of hope, a very strong ray of hope in Cuba and in Nicaragua. And in Venezuela, we have my goodness, the, the, the women especially, like Maria Corina Machado, I mean, they are leading the way. So women are, are leading the way in all, of these, uh, in all of these countries. I'm very optimistic that the youth, the, the artists, uh, are seeing the repression uh, and the brutality of this police state all around them, and they're rising up. And these are, this is a generation that has grown up only knowing repression because that's all they've ever known. And they understand that this is not a way to govern, this is not a way to live. And uh, that's what keeps me energized and that's what will keep me engaged. And, uh, and I hope that I'll, I'll be part of this uh, CSIS family as all of you are. Oh, that's, always that's promoting human rights because that's in our DNA. It, it's in our blood, we have to do it. And we have to do it for all of these people who think that they have no voice. We will help them. Ileana, thank you so much for that. Thank you, Dan. What, what, if you were going to give a homework assignment to the Trump administration, and we have Administrator Green here, 
What homework assignments do they need to be, what do they need to be doing for the next couple of years? Obviously, we've got this impending legislation on the Hill, but what, what, what homework assignments do you want to give Mark um, over the next couple of years on, this, on these issues? Because I know you're never, she, you're she never without work. She gives me homework anyway. She gives <laughs> homework anyway. <laughs> Mark does not, él no necesita tarea. Él nos da tarea a nosotros. Él es el profesor de democracia, porque USAID es un organismo que lo único que hacen es promover los valores americanos de derechos humanos, de democracia, de respeto a los, a los derechos humanos. He's the professor of that USAID. That's, that's, what, that's what USAID stands for. That's what CARL stands for. But I would love to give the Trump administration uh, books like, uh, is Rosa Maria here? Yes. And, uh, and let's hold up that book. And she, oh my gosh, her dad's book, wow. And, and Carlos, Car when Carlos Vecchia, where are you? Where, where's your book? I haven't, I don't know where my purse <laughs> is. I don't know. Book? Whoever has my purse, I have Hold no, no money, so you can keep it. Pero tenemos, tenemos unos defensores de libertad. Here we go. Okay. ¿Cómo se llama? ¿Cómo se, se Libres. Titula? Libres. El nacimiento de una nueva Venezuela. And that, I mean, there are just some incredible human rights uh, uh, proponents. All of you in this audience are, are those ambassadors. And, uh, and I thank you for everything you're doing. And uh, I think the Trump administration is doing everything right internationally. Uh, but yes, as a former school teacher, I would give them a few more homework assignments. But I'm going to leave that for Mark and Carl and you, Dan. But uh, I'll, I'll give them a list of suggested readings. But we'll start with those two books. Thank thanks, you. Thanks, Ileana. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay, so Administrator Green, I think it's really important that, um, that this audience and the audience outside understands all of the work that AID does. Uh, I don't think it's fully appreciated, and I think the Congresswoman was uh, uh, referring to it, but I think you're, you're doing a, a whole an incredible amount of work and really are at the forefront of, of pushing back against these, these very bad regimes. Uh, well, thank you. Uh, so a, a few things. First off, uh, this session today really came out of uh, a gathering that I had yes. with Ely in Miami after my visit to the Summit of the Americas in which the diaspora representing uh, these three countries got together and we were struck by how uh, the troika of tyranny really was one regime, three governments and sharing methods, dark methods and sharing technology and really a reminder that for those of us who believe so wholeheartedly in freedom and democracy and potential, we had better start meeting and sharing information and sharing ideas. And that's what's led to today under Dan's great leadership. But I think that's the path forward. So part of what we can do is help to support and be a lifeline, as I indicated, the net often is, for many of those who are suffering the most. We can provide. Uh, small pieces of, of economic relief and food assistance to political prisoners, and we're doing that. Uh, but I think as much as anything, we need to be clear-eyed and clear-voiced in our condemnation of tyranny yes. and our standing up for democracy and freedom. Yes. Because uh, history tells us, when we take a look at the Iron Curtain, we take a look at the old uh, Soviet empire, the statements that came from Washington were uh, a godsend to those who would otherwise thought they had been left behind and, and yes. without hope. So we must be a source of hope. 
We have to send clear signals that they are not alone, that we recognize this is one broad community. It is in our community's DNA that what happens elsewhere in the region affects us in so many ways. It affects us in the obvious ways when you take a look at this uh, horrible out-migration of those desperately fleeing Maduro. And it's the and largest Ortega. refugee populations in the world right now. We, it's we, enormous. And, and interestingly to me, despite its proximity to the U.S., I think it is one of the least covered yes. forces underway in the world today. We need to do a much better job of helping those in the U.S. realize what is happening so close to their borders. Uh, the consequences of this are enormous not just the suffering uh, and the economic forces, but the potential for it to become destabilizing, left unchecked. We have um, a number of those fleeing Maduro who are moving into countries with fragile economies, yes. economies that were not yeah. designed to be able to withstand these sorts of numbers. So part of what we're doing, we view our role, is to help reinforce those uh, supporting communities, those host communities, those communities of refuge. We think that's, uh, that's crucial. And we are part of the discussion on sanctions. Mm -hmm. And sanctions are important not only for the precise uh, sanctions themselves, but again, as an expression of American views that's towards right. these actions. Yes. So they have a double importance. Um, but finally, what we want to do is to help amplify all of your voices. And I know the next panel, which we should get yes, to soon, is yes. far more important than, quite frankly, any of us. Um, well, I don't know. Well, <laughs> present company accepted. Uh, but we need to listen. We should be guided by them. It's not people like me sitting back here in Washington saying, I've got the answers. It really is trying to unleash what you bring to the table, your experience, your notions, your contacts, your ideas. Uh, the reason that I'm optimistic is because as I met with your constituents yes. down in Miami, uh, I was incredibly impressed by their strength, yes. their energy, their optimism, their drive. If after all that they have been through, they don't give up, how can we? Yeah. How can good. we? We have wow. to be with them. Amen. That is a terrific. How can we? Amen. That is a great I, yeah. I, I could be here all day with the three of you, and I think we, we, and I know all of you would like to be here all day too, but I know we, the show must go on. I wanted to, one of the reasons we wanted to convene this conversation is we wanted to, to honor um, uh, Ileana, and so I was going to ask uh, Carl to make a few remarks and just and recognize oh, Ileana. So continues? somebody can help me with the, uh, <laughs> with the podium. Oh my, what the heck? We're going to give you something. What the heck? You're, I'll do it from here if you all want. Right, Are okay. you going to move it? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh my goodness. So. Oh my goodness. Okay. Whoa. Don't fall off. <laughs> yeah, don't fall. Mosh pit. <laughs> I'll hold this. All right. Thank okay. you. Thank you. Oh my goodness. I've been uh, twice this morning. Ileana yes. has gotten standing ovations of being honored, but this is now almost a little bit formal um, to honor her. Uh, you know, she is somebody, by the way, and she's done it this morning. When she enters a room, she lights it up. She provides it with energy, really and it's quite, quite really amazing. Do. What I want to say about, I want to say one fundamental thing about Ileana. I want to go back to a book that was written by her father, Enrique Ross. Oh, thank you. Uh, and he wrote 20 books. Yes, he did. Um, but this one book was called Cuba Mambises 
born yes. in other countries. Yes. Uh, what is that? What is the Mambises? Mambises is, are the Cubans, the Cuban guerrillas who fought against Spanish rule in the 19th century, in the 10 years war from 1868 to 1878, and then in the War of Independence, 95 to 98. And he wrote about the, the, the US citizens, the Dominicans, the Venezuelans, the Mexicans, the Puerto Ricans, the Colombians, the Peruvians, people from France and Spain and Italy, Poland, and even China, who came to Cuba to fight against uh, the Spanish colonial rule in Cuba. Uh, and that's what Ileana is. She's a kind of Mambesis born, he, born in Cuba, but, but she is a Mambesis, Mambesis that is su supporting democracy all over the world. In May, in May, we were together in the, at the ceremony for yes. Israel. Yes. On the 70th anniversary of Israel. Israel honored 70 people who over 70 years helped Israel. One of them, Leonard Bernstein, and famous people like that. There was one member of Congress out of 535 who was honored by the Israeli embassy on that day, and it was Ileana. She said, she, she told me, I can't talk about that. Well, I said, well, I'll talk about it, and I want to mention. Earlier this year, she went to Dharamsalah to show her solidarity with the people of Tibet. And then after Lodi Gary died one month ago, yes, just one, one month, month ago, ago. Uh, she was the only other person in the Congress who issued a message of passionate solidarity with Lodi in, in memoriam was Nancy Pelosi. The two of them together did that. She was in solidarity uh, with them. And then, you know, she went to Taiwan earlier in this year, and the president of Taiwan, uh, Tsai Ing-wen, uh, presented Ileana with a special medal that was called the Order, the Order of Propitious Clouds. The Order of <laughs> Propitious Clouds. That is a remarkable thing, and it is so appropriate for Ileana. It's better than promiscuous. Right. No. <laughs> <laughs> but what, is, what does propitious mean? And I looked up various synonyms for propitious. One of them is auspicious. One of them is optimistic. You used that word this morning to describe yourself. Bright, rosy, hopeful, and heaven sent. Heaven wow. sent. Okay. It's because she's heaven sent. And because of what she has done for democracy in the Congress and throughout her life and is going to continue to do, that we want to Here it is, her. Carl. Okay. What this is, is this is a woodcut of the goddess of democracy, which was wow. the statue yes. that was raised in Tiananmen Square. We're coming upon the 30th anniversary, 30th anniversary. on June 4th of Tiananmen Square. This is the, the statue that was raised in Tiananmen Square. It is, it is modeled on wow. our Statue of Liberty wow. and has become a global symbol for freedom and for democracy. And I want to give that oh to Ileana. Oh my gosh, hey. Carl, thank you so much. Oh my gosh. Thank you, thank you. And I accept this on behalf of, uh, of so many people. Thank you, Carl. Dan, thank you. Mark, thank you. This is unbelievable. Now I just need an office in which to hang it. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll just put it on my back and just carry it. Take care of it. Do you, so. you want to say something? No, I just a no, few. Please, just please, gosh. please. 
Thank you so much. This is beyond embarrassing. Muchísimas gracias. Qué honor. You know, when we fight for human rights, when we fight for democracy, when we speak about, uh, about the need for freedom, we're speaking on behalf of so many oppressed people. We need to be that voice. We need to be that instrument of change. And uh, we need to remind everyone who is in leadership and e everybody that the United States must always be that shining city on the hill. Amen. We must always uh, value our principles of freedom and democracy. We must never lose sight of that. We cannot be ruled by any other principle than be guided by the truth and the light, and that is freedom and democracy and human rights. And that is what all of these fine gentlemen and each and every one of you stands for. Call that, that is so meaningful. Like I say, I, I don't have an office to hang it on, but I will put it on my back. <laughs> bueno, muchas gracias. Please join me in thanking Ileana. Please join me in thanking Ileana. Give her a round of applause. Please, uh, please stay for a second panel. It's very important. We, we really want to hear from the folks who are really leading this fight. So I'm going to ask Moises to come up. Yeah, and, and Ileana's got to go vote. But please stay. And I'd really, I'm going to leave the, the, in the able hands of my friend and colleague, Moises Rendon. Hello, everybody. Uh, thank you so much for staying for the second panel. Uh, Rosa Maria, yes. Miriam Kornblit, and we had David Smolansky to talk about Nicaragua, Cuba, and Venezuela. Aquí, siéntate acá. Um, okay, let's get started. We don't have much time left, so let's, let's just get started the conversation. Um, if, if everyone can get a seat, please, that would be great. Okay. Okay, that was an inspiring conversation that we just had, um, a fascinating panel. Uh, with a lot of energy, a lot of optimism. Uh, we're very honored to follow in this such an impressive panel and conversation that we just present. 
And that's the type of conversation that inspire the fight that we all have in this region against oppressive regimes. So I really, really appreciate everything that has been said so far. Uh, my name is Moises Rendon. I'm the Associate Director and Associate Fellow of the Americas Program here at CSIS. Um, we, we have another fascinating panel coming up, um, and, and it's a combination of Cuban, Venezuelans, uh, who are going to shed light on what's going on in this regime, how these three regimes are uh, cooperating with each other, what's the role of the Cuban, Nicaraguan, and, and, and Venezuelan regime in each other's countries. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the similarities of these three regimes. Um, uh, what are the lessons learned? Right? We, we heard in the previous panel some of those, but we're going to dig deeper into, into some of them. Um, and lastly, we want to talk about the role of the diaspora, right? We, we have three important diasporas from these three countries that are uh, already doing some work, but needs to be more articulated, needs to be more coordinated. So we're going to talk about that too. And since we have only one hour uh, left, and I haven't really put it on the table yet, but I will appreciate the cooperation from our speakers. Uh, initially, we were planning to talk about five to seven minutes, but um, since we only have one hour, I, I would just recommend to have brief, very brief remarks. We're going to put some questions on the table. Let's have a conversation and, 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 and so on, OK, if that's OK. Um, by the way, we tried to invite Nicaraguan democratic leaders in this panel, but for circumstances out of our control, they not, none of them couldn't be here today. But the, that does not mean that we are not going to be talking about Nicaragua. Nicaragua is also facing a very important crisis, so we, we will be talking and covering Nicaragua as well. Uh, Rosa Maria, thank you for being here. And um, we're going to be uh, starting with you. She, she's a freedom fighter from Cuba. She's a Cuban activist and human rights activist. She's a daughter, as, as um, Carl mentioned in the previous panel, of activist Oswaldo Paya, a head of the Christian liberation movement. She took up much of his activities work after uh, he was killed by agents of the Cuban government. And now she fights for free and fair elections in Cuba in a very interesting movement that is called Cuba Decide. And I, wanna, I want you to talk a little bit about Cuba Decide and what's the, what's the, what are the immediate goals of Cuba Decide, because I think it will be very interesting for our audience um, and, 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 and so on. Okay. Rosa, tell us a little bit about the Cuban regime. Where, what type of tactics, what type of aspects you see in the Cuban regime that are similar to the other two regimes? And, and, and you know, you, you have the oldest regime of the three. So tell, <laughs> tell us a little bit about how you see the situation evolving and, and where you are right now with the Cuba uh, oppression and, and tactics. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much, Moises and, and CSIS also. For, uh, for putting this together and, and for also making that beautiful homage to uh, our Congresswoman, uh, Ileana Ross Lettinen. Uh, you, you asked about uh, lesson learned, and I think that, the, that the, one of the first ones that we should be repeating and repeating and repeating is that for the hemisphere to have tolerated during 60 years old now, the totalitarian regime in the island of Cuba has brought very, very dark consequences as the collapse of the Venezuelan democracy, as the implementation of the socialism of the 21st century, or at least the intent to 
implement the socialism of the 21st century with all their darkness, I mean, with all their methodologic steps to, uh, to uh, try to limit human rights in the, uh, in the purpose of self-perpetuating the governments that also belongs to the photo of Sao Paulo, and this is not by chance. When, uh, when, uh, when we talk about 60 years of the, uh, of the Cuban regime, we are also talking about 60 years of infiltration, manipulation, interference in the whole hemisphere, in the guerrilla movement, in the social movement in, in, in Latin America. And when, when the money appeared to end with the collapse of the, uh, of, of the, uh, of the Soviet, Soviet Union. Union, well, they created the Foro of Sao Paulo with the help of Lula da Silva in Brazil. And the first president of the Foro of Sao Paulo was Hugo Chavez. And then with that platform, with the platform of the G2, the Cuban State Security, and with the money and the resources of the Venezuelan people, well, we, uh, we start to witness a, a hemisphere that um, not just start to uh, de uh, deteriorate uh, in terms of democracy, but also was very united in their silence about the Cuban reality, in their silence then about the Venezuelan reality. And the good point in all this is that that silence uh, changed. That situation started to change, and the, the, what, what, the exposition of the, of the drama in Venezuela helped a lot, but uh, when we are facing this, this troika in which I have to say the head of the octopus is in Havana, <laughs> everybody knows that, so we need to address the head in order to eliminate the, the, the threat, we are seeing a regime that is trying to present themselves as, well, almost as negotiators, a, a mediator in, in, the, in the peace negotiations in Colombia, almost as a mediator also in the crisis in Venezuela, and they have European partners helping in selling that idea and a regime that is trying to sell to the international community that they are changing without actually change. There is a, a, there is a constitutional reform that, is, that have been implemented by the Cuban Communist Party that not just cancel all the human rights uh, first generation that uh, were mentioned by, our, uh, by, by the Senator Bob Menendez, but also perpetuate the ruling role of the Cuban Communist Party forever as the unique and single party that could be ruling the island and also establish as a citizen right, as a citizen right, the right to use weapons against anyone that want to change that single party system. So everybody that is involved in Cuba decision now could be subject to weapon usage against them. And that is not just Cuba decision. That's all the Cuban opposition, all the Cuban uh, civil society. So the, the, uh, the real challenge here is to address the regime and their threats uh, in the roots, to uh, start to support 
the uh, citizen mobilization that is also in, that is that is something that that is also a common element uh, among the three uh, the three populations that have been affected is is the Cuban citizenry, is the Venezuelan citizenry, is the Nicaraguan citizenry, the one that is going to change those regimes. And we have to start to talk about regime change that have been something that sometimes uh, is a kind of a kind of a taboo to mention, but it seems to be our only path to follow. Of course, that, that citizenship have, are going to be the key factor of change, but they cannot do it alone. We are not in 1989 anymore. A million people walking in the streets of Caracas didn't change that regime, and I think that the, 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 the other key factor is the mobilization of the international community ready to ready to present themselves as a, and I'm going to use the word, as a real threat for those criminals that are actually menacing the life and the prosperity of our countries. Thank you. Thank you, Rosa Maria. I think you mentioned a very critical point, and I think it's part of the discussion from the previous panel, too, that there are three regimes, but there is really one system, and we need to face it, we need to address it in a comprehensive way, because they're cooperating, helping with each other, but you also mentioned the Soviet Union, now Russia, which is also playing a role in Venezuela, is playing a role in Nicaragua. China. And it's play China, another external actor in the region that is also helping. So yeah, it's a troika of tyranny, but this troika of tyranny has support from outside actors that we need to keep uh, in mind and it needs to be addressed too. So that, that's a very important point I think is, is crucial to keep on, on the table. David. David Smolansky, he's a former uh, mayor of El Latillo, a municipality in Caracas. He's now the chairman of the working group of the Venezuelan migration at the OAS. Uh, he is uh, one of the uh, uh, most well-known Venezuelan leaders. He's now in the exile. Uh, he's been a, a truly democratic leader, a fighter for, for freedom, not only in Venezuela, but in the region. Uh, I remember seeing you, David, in, in the halls of my university in, my, in, in UCAP, in Universidad Católica. So it's great to see you here. Great to see how much progress you have made so far. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, thank you for your leadership on that. But David is also a victim of, of a, 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 this system that we're talking about, of communism. And it's not only David, that goes back to his roots. I remember, uh, David, uh, your grandparents fled the Soviet Union, well, your great-grandparents fled the Soviet Union, and your, gra your, your, your grandparents fled Cuba to Venezuela in the 1970s, and now you're fleeing Venezuela. You're now in that style. So it's, it's, this is not new to you. This is in your blood, basically. Um, so tell us a little bit about the starting root issue here, communism. What is communism and how communism has affected the way your family has been shaped? And, and, and then tell us a little bit about Venezuela and, and where you see the Venezuelan development going forward. Well, thank you, Moises, for your uh, kind words, and thank you, CSIS, and, and everyone for uh, inviting us. It's a real honor to be here. Um, I think through my family, I have understood what is uh, to live in a communist regime, a criminal regime. Uh, my grand-grandfather used to have, uh, at, at, um, at the Soviet Union, a lumber mill that was expropriated by the Soviets. Then he was uh, uh, illegally detained, 
uh, <clears throat> after two years, he was released and he died. Uh, so my grandparents uh, fled the Soviet Union, specifically Kiev, Ukraine, to Havana, Cuba. That's where they met. Uh, my grandfather used to, had, uh, used to have um, a, a textile company that was expropriated by Fidel Castro on December 5th of 1962. So uh, my, grand my father was born in Havana, and in 1970, my grandparents, for the second time, had to flee a communist uh, regime. My father had to flee for the first time. They left everything in, in Cuba, house, company, everything, family. And now in 2017, I had to flee Venezuela after I was illegally removed uh, as a mayor from the regime uh, because I denied to repress the nonviolent protests last year, and I, I am under arrest warrant. After 35 days in hiding, I was able to flee Venezuela through the jungle in Brazil. So 100 years, three different generations, three different countries, but the same system. It's a cruel system, perverse system, a system that does not respect human rights. It's a system that does not respect the freedom of the press. It's a system that does not respect uh, alternative in power. It's a system that does not respect uh, the private property. It's a system that does not re respect family, because I think the most cruel thing that a communist, communist system has is that separate your family. So now I have family in Venezuela. My parents are still in Venezuela, uh, uh, but I have family also in the United States. Uh, when they fled Cuba, it was the first time when I was a little kid that I came to Miami, they started to listen about Ileana because a, a, a cousin of mine that passed away supported Ileana at the end of the 1980s. That's when, when my father took me to have uh, Moros y Cristianos, Batido de Mamey, <laughs> and everything. And I felt Cuban as well because, I, I mean, everyone who is uh, born from a father or mother of Cuban is uh, Cuban. So um, when you see this, um, and, and as, 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 as Rosa Maria said it very well, uh, the Soviet Union uh, fell, and then you have the photos of Paolo, and I'm going to add the socialism of, of the 21st century. When you have countries like Venezuela, Nicaragua, Bolivia, Ecuador, Cuba, um, Brazil, that were involved in that socialism of, of, of the uh, 21st century, which is the same as the communism of the 20th century. Fortunately, countries like Brazil, countries like uh, Ecuador, uh, or Argentina were able to change uh, 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 that, uh, th that system that are going on in now in Venezuela. Nicaragua has been going on in Cuba for more than, than almost 60 years. Mm -hmm. uh, um, but what I want to say is that Fidel Castro always wanted to expand its revolution to the whole Latin America. It happened when he had his links with uh, Salvador Allende in Chile. It happened when he had his links with the uh, uh, armed groups in Colombia. It happened when he literally invaded Venezuela against Romulo uh, Betancourt, our first democratic president, and it was uh, stopped by, by, by the moment. And I think that in, in regarding Venezuela, uh, I think we did not value what was democracy and freedom, to be honest with you, in the past. Um, Venezuela used to, was, was known as a country that exported oil and women to compete in the Miss Universe. But probably the most important thing was not told in that moment when you had a lot of hyperinflation in the region, dictatorships, armed conflicts. Venezuela was exporting democracy and freedom in the 1960s, in the 1970s, even in the 1980s or 1990s. So that was not well exported in my opinion. In, by the 1960s, 7.5% of Venezuelan's population was immigrant. Now 10% of Venezuelan population is in a refugee situation. It's the largest 
uh, refugee uh, population in the world just behind Syria. It's above South Sudan, Myanmar, Afghanistan, uh, and else. So, you were just in the border. Yes, last week. How many, can you give us the fresh, most updated numbers? How many yeah. people are fleeing today? Well, as we speak, uh, three million Venezuelans have already fled the country since 2014. Uh, when, you, when you consider the whole diaspora, we're talking more than four million uh, Venezuelans. Uh, as I said, three million is the largest uh, refugee population in the world just behind uh, Syria. Our projection is that probably will end between 3.2, 3.3 uh, by the end of the year. That's wow. 5,000 Venezuelans are fleeing the country daily. That's 208 Venezuelans fleeing the country per hour. 70% of the women that are giving birth in Maicao, which is one of the cities in the border with Venezuela, are uh, women. Between 30 and 40% of the women that are giving birth in, in Norte Santander Hospital are, are uh, Venezuelans. Uh, uh, the, the increase of the HIV positive in Maicao is 375%. Uh, 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 and the, uh, the Catholic Church, which is doing an amazing job, they were providing 2,000 meals in April. Now they're providing more than 10,000 meals as we speak. So it's just six months, five times uh, more. That's the, biggest evidence of the, of the demand on, on the humanitarian crisis. So in, in my opinion, uh, I know we have a uh, uh, short time, I think it is a very important moment to get united and to get better organized. A Cuban opposition, Nicaraguan opposition, and Venezuelan opposition. I think the, the, the diagnosis, all of, all of us, we know that. It just gets worse and worse. As Rosa Maria said, the head of the octopus, I don't have any doubt, is in Havana. The Cubans are literally run, running uh, Venezuela, specifically armed forces, on, on the security uh, bodies and, and intelligence services. That is going on also in Nicaragua and any country in the region, as long as uh, Cuba with uh, Diaz-Canel and Venezuela with Maduro and Sixth are in risk to have on the same uh, uh, the same problem and, and lose uh, democracy. So I think as they are connected, as they cooperate between uh, them, I think it's important for us to be united, to, to do actions together, to like the Nicaraguan that were protesting in the OES uh, uh, months ago, and, I, and some of us were with them, uh, to do a statement together and that, and that Maduro, Ortega, and Diaz-Canel see that our dissidents of those regimes are united and are working together are, and are pressuring to restore democracy on, on those countries. Just to end, Venezuela has become a criminal hub. Mm -hmm. It's just a safe haven for anyone who is criminal, go to Venezuela. Uh, North Korea was this week in Venezuela. Erdogan is going next week to Venezuela. ELN is in Venezuela. Drug traffickers are in Venezuela. Illegal mining is in Venezuela. Human trafficking is in Venezuela. Mega bandas, gangsters are in Venezuela. Whoever you think, Venezuela is the, probably the safest heaven right now in the world to do criminal activities. And uh, we're going to need uh, help from the international community to restore democracy, to recover freedom. And I am convinced that if we are able to tackle Maduro uh, uh, in Venezuela, that he doesn't give a damn on the oil right now because he's having more money from the criminal economy than from producing oil, mm -hmm. that will have a positive effect on Nicaragua and Cuba. But to achieve that, the ones that are now in the resistance, in exile, and the ones who are still fighting in our countries have to be united in just one front. Thank you. Yeah, on that note, I think it's important to highlight what happened <coughs> earlier this week. Uh, there was 
a one billion bribery and money scheme um, case against a former treasury of Venezuela, and just earlier this week. So those, those were money and assets from the South Florida area that were stolen from the Venezuelan people. Yeah. So the, the question now is how, how to put those assets, how to put those money into use, into a good cause, to support democratic leadership, to support democratic groups, to support the fight in, for freedom in, this country, in, in these three countries. And, and I know that this is going on, but I think it's important to keep him, and to shed light on that issue and, and to, to work out the best way to, to move forward on that regard. Miriam Cornblit, thank you so much for being here. Miriam is a senior director uh, from the Latin America and the Caribbean at the National Endowment for Democracy. And as the panel, the previous panel mentioned, the NET and Miriam specifically on Latin America, they are a lifeline. You guys are hope, you always bring hope. I, I think that the way um, Congresswoman Ileana put it, you guys are putting flowers in the region, flowers of freedom and democracy. So thank you, Miriam, for your leadership on this, on this issue. I think it's, in, it's crucial the work that you're doing, and, and, and I think uh, I hope it continues and, and strength in, 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 the, in the coming um, time. Tell us a little bit about Nicaragua, uh, Miriam, um, um, and you, know, you also have the big picture. So what lessons learned do you see from these three regimes? And what are the key similarities that we all need to keep in mind? And, 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 and you know, tell us your thoughts on how you see that, the, and how can we best prepare to articulate better the response? Thank you very much, Moises, and thank you very much uh, for this, carrying out this event. I, I really feel very honored and humbled to share this uh, panel with such prominent and bright and brave uh, leaders, uh, Rosa Maria and, and David. And unfortunately, uh, we don't have a Nicaraguan here. We really, we, we invited several, but unfortunately, the, the situation in the country has deteriorated in a very acute fashion mm -hmm. in the last month, but including this last week. So those who were willing to come couldn't because of police repression, uh, intimidation, rep uh, surveillance, so unfortunately, as, as uh, Moises said, uh, our intention was to have a, a, a real voice of Nicaragua here present. Well, man, many, much comment has already been made about Nicaragua. I just want to stress the fact that Nicaragua is a, a 6.2 million uh, country, 6.2 million people uh, in Nicaragua. However, the intensity of repression in the past uh, months has been uh, just just terrible. I mean, in comparative terms, uh, in Nicaragua, reports vary between 350 and 500 people that have been murdered. There are 600 uh, political prisoners. Uh, a small country such as Nicaragua has already, already has uh, 40,000 people fleeing the country. Uh, the economic situation is, 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 has deteriorated in a very fast pace. So in terms of, of the, the consequences of recent uh, repression, uh, Nicaragua is facing a, a very, very dire situation. However, as it has been also mentioned, uh, Nicaraguans are in the streets, are organized, are putting together sound, solid platforms, have, are uh, reacting in an effective way and, and trying to not only articulate their internal efforts, but also to articulate their efforts with, with international community 
as has been mentioned earlier, there in this just this week there has been uh, a significant uh, messages from the UN, the United States in regards to Nicaragua, the OFAC uh, uh, sanctions against uh, uh, Murillo, and uh, a, a, a very close ally to. Uh, uh, Ortega and Murillo, and also the recently passed NICAAC uh, show uh, uh, a strong commitment from uh, that the U.S. and the bipartisan commitment to address the Nicaraguan situation. And I think that this uh, shows and uh, maybe shows uh, some lessons learned. I mean, the, unfortunately, the, the international community was extremely slow and extremely mm -hmm disengage with the ongoing crisis in Venezuela. 20 years of deterioration were only met in the past two or three years with a more decis decisive and deliberate effort from the international community. So in the case of Nicaragua, deterioration was taking place, was ongoing, was kind of overshadowed by the situation of Venezuela. However, uh, there wasn't enough attention, but at least now that the crisis has exploded in such a dramatic fashion, there is a much more, uh, there's a higher awareness and there's also been a, a, a more immediate reaction. I would like to kind of uh, continue your comments, uh, David, yes. in, regard, in regards to uh, the democratic players. I mean, what's what can what have we learned, and what can be done, and what are common for, common trends or, th or threats? Um, also threats, but <laughs> common uh, uh, trends that we can uh, identify uh, in regards to to actions. Because I mean, the first thing we need to think about is how to be effective. We, have, we know that these three regimes, or this single regime with three different governments, interact among themselves, exchange worst practices, let's not call them best practices, ex ex mm -hmm. exchange worst practices, are, are connected, uh, share resources, share intelligence. So how, how do we respond to this? Mm -hmm. And I think there's several aspects that need to be stressed. First of all, we know that these three regimes, and not all, only them, all these regimes are, 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 and globally are very focused on destroying opposition, on uh, dividing opposition, on creating internal divisions, strife, lack of trust, uh, creating, uh, isolating uh, opposition groups among themselves. So one first, and I would say extremely important task, almost responsibility of oppositions in these countries has to be to unite, has to be to articulate their efforts, has to be to uh, identify co common platforms, define common strategies, and act united. Understand that any division in the opposition is playing in favor of those regimes. I know it's difficult and we all know different uh, situations, however, that has to prevail as a, a very important message because any divided opposition will just play in favor of the regime and will diminish the ability of the peoples that they represent to get rid of oppressive uh, governments. This, uh, this uh, the, un the 
united oppositions have to be strategic and also have to have a clear diagnostic, a clear understanding of the kinds of regimes they're, they're facing because a good understanding will provide a, a, a good strategy. It's also important to build uh, pluralistic and diverse uh, platforms, not, not exclusively political, not exclusively civil society, not exclusively artists. It has to be a, a broad, diverse, and, and uh, pluralistic uh, uh, approach because uh, that strengthens uh, the call. And it's also very important to establish clear, effective, and uh, significant communication with the people, with the population. These regimes are very astute and very, uh, a very capable in dividing and isolating uh, leadership from the, from the people. So uh, that's also something that needs to be addressed in a very strategic, effective fashion, and also in a very sympathetic factor, fashion in terms of understanding what are the, the needs and what, what are the, the, yeah, the needs and, and the dire situation that all of these, uh, uh, these populations are feeling. Then there's the issue of the international community. We have mentioned this uh, systematically, and we have all discovered that these regimes cannot be addressed in an isolated fashion because they have international uh, uh, ties, links, they have international relations. So the international community has a very important role. And we know that uh, that, that role can be even critical or crucial or, or uh, at some point can, can can really uh, turn events in, in, a diff in, a, in a certain dimension. So in this uh, regards, one, I mean, there are several uh, lessons that we've learned throughout the years. One lesson is that there needs to be a good and, and a strategic relationship between what the international community is, is doing, thinking, uh, deciding, and what inter internal domestic uh, forces are also doing, thinking, and deciding. There has to be communication because international community on the one side and domestic forces on the other, without communication, not only is, at best can be just ineffective, at worst can be very counterproductive. So that's something very important to mention. And also that the international community needs to think in a, in a very creative way, as Carl mentioned earlier. I mean, there, there are the existing conventional instruments, but there are also emerging instruments. The Magnitsky Act that has been used for, for Nicaragua is an, a, new, a new instrument, targeted sanctions, using, in the case of the OAS, and this is, uh, uh, we need to recognize the efforts of uh, Secretary General Almagro, who has been very creative in trying to address the, the calamity of the Venezuelan situation first by activating the idea of the alteration of the democratic uh, order. The, the Inter-American uh, Charter uh, in, includes looking at uh, the interruption of democratic order in the countries and the alteration of the democratic order. And in both occasions, the countries have the responsibility and, uh, to intervene to oversee what's going on in, in each one of the countries. It had, the OAS had only used the, uh, the, the interruption of the democratic order to address coups 
but had not used and had not uh, defined how to address the alteration of democratic order, which is exactly what happened in Venezuela throughout these 20 years, what has happened in, in Nicaragua throughout these 10 years, and identified a way of doing it. And the uh, OAS has also identified a way of connecting the inter-American system with the universal system through channeling the case against uh, human rights abuses and crimes against humanity in Venezuela through uh, presenting uh, the case at the International Criminal Court. So it's the convention and instruments, but also going beyond them, which is very important, and always tied to the internal uh, forces. And finally, as we have all the mentioned, I mean, there is an emerging uh, actor, player, which is not so emerging in the case of Cuba because it's six decades. It is a new actor in the case of Venezuela. Uh, Nicaragua had a, a previous uh, diaspora. It's now, again, diaspora is becoming a, a force. The connection between international, the international community and domestic community in many cases is played, this disconnection is, is facilitated by diasporas. Diasporas can be a very useful player. They can also create problems, of course, but they can, all, they can be a very useful uh, player. And it's very important for democratic players, democratic forces, both inside the country and outside the country, to identify the potential of the diasporas, to make use of the diasporas, not only to facilitate and promote and, and, and trigger transitions and uh, uh, changes in, in the three countries, but also as a constructive force to recover and to re uh, to transform each one of the countries once uh, a new situation arises. So, uh, and the main message here is to identify each one of these actors, uh, yeah. act uh, consistently, and also and take into account the connections of the three of them in a systematic and targeted and strategic fashion. Definitely. That the role of the diaspora is crucial. I think the Cuban diaspora has some lessons learned to teach mm -hmm. to the Venezuelan diaspora, right? I mean, the Venezuelans are not used to be diaspora. We're, this is a new, uh, this is new okay. to Venezuelans. So Cubans have experience. So I would love to hear your thoughts on that, Rosa Maria. But also I want to put it in, in the table. That, uh, I think it's a crucial issue. I, I know it's, it's probably tough, but I, I want to make sure to, to hear your thoughts. And it's, is it elect? I mean, yes, the role of the international community is crucial, and no question, no doubt. And that's why we are seeing more involvement from so many countries on these three countries. But the internal pressure is also very important, right? We cannot just rely on the international community. We need to keep a light on, on, on inside of those three countries and to increase that internal pressure. And one of the tools that you know, the three societies are being debating on how to use is elections. Because mm -hmm. you know, elections is the main mechanism that we know to, to, to elect officials and to, to, to be a democratic society. Uh, but the problem is, is that when you have such a repressive regimes in these three countries that are not allowing having free and unfair elections, and, and I know Cuba, the city, is trying to push a plebiscite. Um, so I want to hear a little bit of, uh, from you, Rosa Maria. What is Cuba, Cuba decide, uh, the city, sorry, um, a proposal? And, and do you see in a scenario where Cuba can have 
free and unfair elections in the short term? Can elections be a tool in Cuba? And I think Nicaragua is facing the same dilemma. We just had a, a Nicaraguan diaspora group in CSIS not too long ago, and their main mission is to increase pressure on the Ortega regime to sit down on a negotiation table to go for elections. But can elections be free and unfair under the Ortega regime? And, and, and the same dilemma is with Venezuela, right? I mean, and that's been the issue. Um, so I, I, wanna, I wanna hear your thoughts. Is election a, 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 an effective tool within these three environments? And, and, and tell us a little bit about Cuba the Seed as well, Rosa. Thanks. Yes, thank, thank you so much. A very, very good question. And uh, I think that I, I'm going to answer it right now, but we have to also understand that we are not anymore uh, facing uh, Soviet Union kind of regimes. Uh, we are facing mafias in power. Mm -hmm. These are criminals in power, very well connected, uh, very well organized. They are, they are cultivating now what they already uh, started 20 years ago. And now we are starting to face that and we uh, awake to the reality in which, they, in which we are just suffering this, uh, this uh, criminal's uh, empowerment. So that, of course, that unity of the opposition is important. Of course, that the diversity uh, uh, among that opposition, civil society, citizenry is important and is, uh, uh, and is a resource. But we, uh, but, but we should be careful in putting conditions to the freedom of our citizenries. Uh, because it's very, very easy for the Cuban G2 to spread division among the opposition. It has been all easy to do it also. In the, in the, in the case of the, of the Venezuelan opposition that I respect and admire so much. But we, my, my humble opinion is that it's much more difficult for these criminals to fight the proposal than to fight the people. We as people, we have miseries, we have big issues, we have uh, issues, and they can address them. But they cannot answer the question why the Cuban people haven't been able to go to free, fair, and multi-party elections in 70 years, because the last ones were in 1950. Na 1950. 50, wow. 1950 yes. was the last, the last time in which the Cuban people actually went to free, fair, and multi-party and multi election. So yes, uh, uh, we need to, to strengthen the opposition. We need unity, but that unity, I encourage to be a unity of purposes, a unity of objectives, a, of goal, a common goal, and try to work everybody for that common goal, because the, 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 the monolithic uh, table of the of the opposition is an easier is an easier uh, adversary to fight than the proposal of that table. So of course that we need the table. Of course that we need more than the table. We need to work on the political alternative that is going to implement the transition process. We need to do that, of course. But first we need to detonate the political scenery, that one in which 
David could be actually a candidate and win the elections. So what is Kuwaitside? Kuwaitside is trying to provide a platform in which we can all together work on towards that that minimum goal, which is to detonate that political scenery, which is to actually change the, uh, the system, because the other face of the coin here is that we cannot have free, fair, multi-party elections in Cuba because the Constitution forbidden them. The system is so that you cannot have elections. It's not, it's not an, a, a, a possibility. So you first have to change that system. And the plebiscite is a technique tool that could help us to change the system in an institutional, organized way. But it's not going to happen spontaneously. Mm -hmm. It's the technique tool that is going to, is, that is going to uh, uh, provide the citizenry with, with a tool sorry, uh, to, uh, to legitimately change things with the recognition of the international community mm -hmm. and with something that is measurable. But, but, but that's not even the point now. The point is how are we going to force these criminals in powers in the three countries to, to submit themselves to the will of the people. And uh, uh, I, I think that as everybody has said, we need to be creative. I think that the answer passed by the citizenry, by the citizen mobilization, by the non-violent struggle by, by the peaceful movement at the Gandhi style and all the styles that came after. And it needs also to be coincident in time and space with the efforts of the international community with all the creativity that you can think better than I, that goes with targeted sanctions, but goes also with political pressure, with economical pressure, try to corner these regimes that the other face of the coin, because this coin has several faces, is that they are right now in a much vulnerable situation that we can realize. I mean, why the Cuban regime is making a constitutional reform if the current, the current constitution already says that the Communist Party is going to be there forever? But they are making a constitutional reform because they have been a lot of people inside and outside the island telling them you are not legitimate. There is no another general that came down from the Sierra Maestra to put in power. And they need a referendum that actually is not a plebiscite, it's not asking the people, hey, you want free, fair, multi-party elections, or you want this? No, no, it's a referendum between the Cuban Communist Party and the Cuban Communist Party. Both constitutions say the same thing, the, same thing, the current and the project. So they are trying to give the international community the perception that something has changed, that they somehow have the consent of the people by actually leaving the people without choices. So the, uh, the, 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 without having the absolute truth, we could maybe work together trying to find that truth, but it passed by supporting the citizenry and making their position, making the Cuban civil society to work with that citizenry that's very, very good, Miriam, that you mentioned, is, is, is at the end of the day, is the people, the one that is going to save the people. And, uh, and, and we as opposition or as, or, or as uh, civil society, we can just work with them to, uh, to the final word to be defined by the citizenry 
and not by any other any other party because I mean no one has the Cuban people have never chosen me to decide for them or anyone in the in the Cuban uh, in the Cuban opposition in the in the Venezuelan opposition is different <laughs> but in the Cuban opposition we have been never chosen by the Cuban people either what we want is to detonate that scenery in which the Cuban people could have a voice and not to be the voice of anyone we want everybody to to have their own voice I just going to leave one idea here that we have published in CSS before the role of technology this little device can do so much so especially in repressive environments like the one that we see in Venezuela Cuba with technologies like blockchain independent cryptocurrencies they can they they have a role right now in how to organize people how to make people vote without the outside of the control of the government or the regimes so I think it's worthwhile thinking out of the bots uh, we are in a time where we need to do, we're forced to do it, and I think that this is crucial and in the Cuban environment, in the Venezuelan environment for sure, and in especially in Nicaragua as well. David, uh, we don't have much time, I want to make sure that we, we get to the audience for Q&A. Just take two or three minutes, and then Miriam, and you as well. Um, you're facing a very important, I mean, you know, Venezuela is a complex problem as well. We, we're not talking about dictatorship only. It's, it, and you mentioned it. It's, it's beyond dictatorship. It's a criminal state. It's a narco state. And, and I think Ambassador Brownfield put it in a, in a way that, that makes sense. It's a mafia state, state because it goes beyond narco trafficking. It goes beyond, you know, the normal activities that a, a, a narco organization does. So, what type of response do you do you think should be should be should be seen from the international community not to a dictatorship but to a to the mafia state? And Miriam, you were the former member, you, you were at the board of the Electoral Council in Venezuela, CNE, um, not CNN but CNE, Consejo Nacional Electoral. You were also vice president of, of CNE when, when Venezuela was a democracy, and you, you have first-hand experience of the power of elections, right? And, and, and that's one of the dilemmas we're talking here. So how do you see do, those democratic tools being played both in Nicaragua, in Venezuela, and also in Cuba? Uh, I would love to get your thoughts on that too. Uh, but again, two, three minutes, yes. then we go to the audience. Well, as someone that was elected five years ago to be mayor, uh, right now there's no conditions for uh, free and fair elections in Venezuela. Uh, anyone who is thinking on that, like some councilmen that are running for, I don't know what they're running on the next week, is <laughs> just playing with toys. Mm -hmm. It's not understanding the real problem. Having said that, I'm not someone who is against free and fair elections. I hope that we could have a free and fair election to solve the problem in Venezuela. But I think it's beyond that. Venezuela is a case study of the 21st century under on the refugee crisis, migration crisis, but also as a modern dictatorship that has gone beyond that. I mean, uh, a, lot of the, a lot of dictatorships in the past just came the soldiers with the tanks, take power, and that's it. Uh, how was Chavez elected in 1998? Legal political parties, any, any candidate who wanted to run, run as a president, free media, uh, independent powers, etc. He won, and 20 years after, you don't have any options uh, to have free and fair elections. Uh, opposition leaders are in jail or in exile. Political parties have been illegalized. Media is completely censorship and the, the institutions are controlled. And it has gone beyond a dictatorship, it has become a, a criminal state, a, a mafia state. 
But I think in the next weeks are critical in Venezuela uh, mm -hmm. because on this unique case, uh, you have a dictatorship, a criminal state, a mafia state that doesn't run the parliament, uh, which is run by the majority of, of, of the opposition. So I, I think <coughs> you, need, you need here uh, four uh, important aspects. Uh, the first aspect is the, the international community. Uh, uh, we need the international community to, to keep the pressure on the regime, sanctions against the one who have been involved in human rights violation, illicit activities, corruption, money laundry, and not only the ones who have been responsible, the ones that are, are, are surround them, you know, family, friends, frontmen. Um, second, even though we haven't had the same protests that we had last year in Venezuela, we have 25 daily protests in Venezuela with an average of 200 and 300 people participating every day. Uh, I think it's not the quantity of people, but the quality of the protest. As someone that started in politics protesting as a student leader, um, I think right now for Maduro, it's worse to have 200 people four blocks away of Miraflore mm -hmm. than 10,000 people kilometers away from Miraflore. And we need to support them and we have to be with them because it's happening every day. And I think it's a huge political opportunity in Venezuela. Uh, uh, third, as I said, we need to uh, preserve the, 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 the National Assembly, especially having uh, a new uh, directiva on, on January 5th, that just five days before January 10th, of, of, of Maduro. In my opinion, this is a very personal opinion, uh, I think uh, after January 10th, the National Assembly should uh, have government functions and should be the head of state right. of Venezuela. That's my personal opinion. And it's legal, and it's institutional, and it's constitutional, and it could have the support of the people and the international community. You don't need that a bullet, you don't need that intermediary intervention, you just need the National Assembly to do what people are waiting to do. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, uh, and in the, the Constitution doesn't say when you don't have a president, a vice president who runs the, the country. A lot of uh, constitutional lawyers, well respected in Venezuela, have said, well, the National Assembly could run the, the, the country, and that National Assembly should uh, uh, appoint new uh, 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 director, new directors of the of the uh, electoral uh, court council, and those call for a free and fair elections. But the fourth aspect, and sorry if I took a little bit more of time, time is the armed forces. Venezuela has 2,000 generals. That's more more than the whole NATO. This is incredible, and those are the ones who protect Maduro, who have the political and economical privilege who are the ones who are involved in the criminal activities. And, and, and because of them and the regular groups is why Maduro is still in power, arms and fearing the people. But the majority of the armed forces are suffering the same problem of any Venezuelan, lack of food, lack of medicine. On the last four years, there is an average of four or, or 300 soldiers and police that have been killed of, because of crime. Mm -hmm. So they're suffering the same problem. I've been the border six times in the last five months. Mm -hmm. And I am I'm amazed of that of how many police and soldiers I have seen in the border in Brazil and Colombia just deflecting. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, organizing themselves to say, well, we, we want something institutional. So if we, and in the last year, there have been five military and police movements that have been dismantled by the G2, by, by Venezuelan uh, security forces. Almost 50% of the political prisoners, almost 200, are soldiers. So if we are able to have our forces institutional with the National Assembly, with the protests of the international community, I think we have a chance to uh, uh, tackle the dictatorship, 
try to restore democracy, but as, as we, have, we have said in the, in before, this is a mafia state, a criminal state that will need more than that. We will need uh, international uh, uh, coalition with the United States, Canada, Brazil, Colombia, the United Kingdom, France, uh, European Union, Israel, helping Venezuelans to have governance, helping Venezuela to restore institutions, helping Venezuela to have security, and at the end of the day, having democracy and freedom again. Yeah, for those who are not watching Venezuela closely, the January 10th is, is an important issue, yeah. and Carl was mentioning it by saying we need to boycott the January 10th issue. I mean, more, all, almost 50 countries, and democratic, free countries like the US, Canada, the European Union, Australia, even Japan, did not recognize the latest presidential elections in May 20th uh, of this year. So the new presidential period begins on January 10th of 2019. The big question right now is how these 50 countries, or even beyond those countries, are going to respond post-January 10th. And this has very important implications legally and politically, both. Uh, so that's, that's something, that's a tool, that's, a, that's an event, that's a deadline that the international community can use to increase pressure. And I think if we work together towards that goal, I think it's, it's going to create some important impact. Um, Miriam, um, you have maybe two, three minutes to, to wrap up the, the conversation and we're going to open it up. Yeah, thank you very much. I mean, um, yeah, as a former member of the, as a former vice president of the Electoral Council with the dubious merit of having been the pr vice president when Chavez was elected yeah. the first time, I obviously have a very, uh, I'm, I'm very, I mean, I value elections very much. If you think about it, uh, in any democratic country, uh, voters comprise between 70 and 75% of the population. That is, every, every uh, adult above 18 years, and in case of Nicaragua, they can vote even at, uh, at 16 years old. So uh, elections are the main uh, mobilizing process in a democracy that involves two-thirds of the population directly mm -hmm. and has implications for 100%. So indeed, that's a critical preeminent process for, for democracy and institution for democracy. And that's why dictators also try to use uh, uh, elections on their, uh, for their own benefit, because it provides a, a very strong legitimacy and legality to emerging uh, governments. And that's why dictatorships have also intervened elections to, to the extent that elections in Venezuela, in Nicaragua, are unrecognizable as such, and elections just don't exist in Cuba, despite the fact that they talk about votes, which is only basically an endorsement of a list of candidates that the, the, the party presents, and people have to endorse them, but that is not an election. So for Democrats around the world, and for Democrats in these kind of conditions, dealing with elections is always a dilemma. And mm -hmm. it, it's a dilemma that the, these governments put in place in order to also create uh, internal divisions, uh, options, concerns, and dilemmas, true dilemmas for, for oppositions, because oppositions have always have, in these kind of countries, in these kind of situations, always have to ask, is it worthwhile, is it not? Will this election really become a tool for political uh, uh, struggle to advance democracy? Will, will these elections be a tool against democracy? And, that's the, and that, it is a real and critical decision that oppositions have to address e in each moment. If, we hadn't, if the Venezuelan opposition had not participated in the elections in 2015, and many 
many, I mean, rightfully, discussed whether it was a good or bad idea to participate in those elections, because elections in Venezuela have been totally distorted and uh, transformed in, 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 in terms of what a real, free, fair, transparent, integral election is. Even if uh, the opposition had not decided to go to elections on 2015, had not decided to present a unified <laughs> list of candidates for, for the National Assembly, we would not have that very strong, powerful yes, instrument right. now, nowadays. Mm -hmm. but, but on the other hand, the opposition decided not to uh, participate in the elections last year because they were, this year actually, they were so distorted, they were so denaturalized in terms of what a, an election can be. And we already knew that the government, and the opposition already knew that the government would not respect uh, the outcome of those elections, that the same opposition that decided to participate in elections in 2015 decided not to participate in elections in 2018. So oppositions and uh, democratic players in these kind of situations have always have to weigh and have to confront whether it is a worthwhile exercise to participate or not to participate in elections. But as uh, David said, and also in, it's implied in what Rosa Maria said, democratic oppositions prefer elections. A democratic, for a democratic oppositions, elections is a matter of principles. It's a matter of, of bringing the voice of the people, the massive voice of the people, the 70, 70 plus percent of the population expressing themselves directly with implication for 100%. So it's a most valued institution for Democrats, but Democrats in each, in these kind of situations are forced by the circumstances to have to assess in each case whether uh, participating or not will be a contribution or not to strengthening democracy and, and expanding the possibilities of democracy in each case. Great, thank you Miriam so much. Uh, you have all been very patient, thank you so much. Uh, just say your name and your affiliation and go straight <coughs> to the question please. We have three aisles, so let's take yeah, one from that. each aisle. Let's start from the left. Yeah, here one, we have one, then two. Good morning, this is wonderful debate. Thank My you. name is Walter Jurassic. I am Polish-American Congress. You asked a question about the communist. I escaped the communist when I was 19, so I understand quite well. Now, from that point, I learned a lot of things. But democracy, and I, see, and I hear this debate, the democracy and human rights never can be accomplished until you panel and the expert understand the evil and the human factor. Let me put it this way. Very quickly, and I will ask question. Mm -hmm. No panel on this, no panel over here, ever discuss how important is education. Let's face it, question to, from gentlemen from Venezuela, yes. from Cuba, from all of these countries, South America, Central America, since I came over here, I travel all over, and I speak Spanish too, Great. but that's beside. Yes. Let me put it this way, I observe, I see it, okay? Where the Venezuelan when 20 years ago, when they were doing, I studied with Venezuelan, by the way, where they were, when they were so well, economically, everything, abandoned the kids, no education for the kids, abandoned the people, the elite got to the power, they never thought about the future of the next generation. It happened to the Central America, it has happened to, the, to many other countries in South America, as well all over the world, and human rights has a big act and aid to education, 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 repeat. 
Poland has undergraduate, underground education. Communist collapse, because not the communists, but they have an undergraduate, underground education. People educate themselves beyond. So my question is, we have a solution, but not the politicians have a solution. I think the people have a solution. Thank you. Thank you for the question. Yes, let's go to her. I'm Vanessa Jimenez, a political scientist, Venezuela. Um, I have a question for Rosa Maria and Esmolaski. Um, uh, we have in front of, I have in front of now, uh, two leaderships for that to, um, to record the democracy in Cuba and Venezuela. Yes, what is the plan to actions to spread the Islamic terrorists? Because this is the result of the problem. And Cuba is the window of this, and Venezuela support Islamic terrorists. Um, I have another question. Um, amazing job, Smolansky, uh, that you did the last week uh, in the South America. Um, where are the where the regions, countries doing to get agreement and get to the democracy restitution, which will be a solution to the human crisis? How to get cooperation of those region, regions, countries receiving the exodus being does the state have no established economics? Um, you have talked about an action plan to fight xenophobia. What is, what is the, plan, the action plan? I would to like to present you a campaign to create consensus to eliminate the xenophobia that our brothers have been victims of in different countries where this is this the massive ex exodus is taking place. This campaign to create consensus is currently being developed at the George Washington University. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for the question. Yes. Yeah, I, I just wait for the mic. Thank you. I don't have any uh, comment, but I have a very quick question. Sure. And perhaps uh, Miriam could answer. Awesome. Uh, do we have an estimate of the amount of uh, millions, whatever it is, that despite the great suffering and what's happening in Venezuela, uh, that Mr. Maduro continues to send to uh, Raul Castro? Is there an estimate on that? Thank you. Thank you for the question. Well, we, we have three very different questions, and uh, feel free to, uh, I think, Rosa Maria, you got a couple. So let's start with you, if you don't mind. Um, one, one of them is the, 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 I think it's a crucial question, the terrorist presence in Cuba. Is there any terrorist presence? Is ISIS in Cuba? How type, what type of collaboration you see uh, in the Cuban environment when it comes to, to, to terrorism and, and beyond terrorism? Well, I, I don't have intel uh, information uh, because what we're talking about is a very hermetic regime uh, that do not have to explain themselves to the, to the Cuban people. They haven't done that. In, in, in 60 years, but we knew yesterday in the morning, I think that, for instance, Gavino, the chief of the ELN, is in Havana, and, uh, and he flew to Havana from Venezuela. Uh, so uh, it's, it's a reality that uh, my country has been a sanctuary for terrorism during the last half of century. Uh, that there actually that was why Cuba was in the list of countries sponsoring terrorism, according with uh, United States, it was removed, but uh, the sanctuary remained. Of course, that there is a, a, a huge threat 
not just to the Cuban people, it's a huge threat to the national security even of this country, actually. And that if you combine that with the fact that, the, that uh, we are dealing with one of the, if not the best, one of the best intelligence systems in the hemisphere, uh, you have a very complicated threat. James Kepler uh, in 2016 was explaining in front of the uh, American Congress that the four biggest threats in espionage to the United States were Russia, China, Iran, and Cuba. Mm. Cuba was the four biggest threats, threat in espionage for the United States. And of course, the, the, the other three are bigger than, than Cuba, but the other three understand very well with the Cuban YouTube and, and, uh, and with, the, with the Cuban regime. So I don't have, of course, I, I, I don't have a, a, a call to action a different from support democracy in the island. Because a, 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 democra a, a democracy in, in, in Cuba is the way to stop that threat. That is not going to stop because you start to, to make pacts or, or deals with the dictators. That have been tried in the past and haven't worked. Why? Because they need each other. Because they work together. We, well, we, all, all of us have witnessed what took place with the sonic attacks. Uh, in Cuba, we still don't know which intelligence <laughs> uh, apparatus was the one in perpetrating, but we know that that couldn't have happened without at least, at least, the toleration or cooperation of the Cuban state security. So it is a threat to the whole hemisphere. The way to eliminate that threat is to work with the Cuban Democrats, with the Venezuelan Democrats, with the civil society in supporting the citizenry to, to change that regimes. It's the, it's the only path that I see. And of course, education is very, very uh, important. My father used to say that to educate is to liberate. And it's not a, it's not, it's not a new idea. Jose Martí said the same thing. Um, of course, that, um, that we need to educate, but we need to educate in, the, in, the, uh, in, in progress. We need to change the system. We cannot stop and uh, start to teach and then, uh, and then to uh, start to promote change. We have to do the, the both things at the, same, at the same time and to learn our lesson. And after we recover democracy, to, uh, to also teach next generations in what is grown and what is, uh, and what is right um, for prosperity, peace, and democracy. Let, let me echo that. Education in the day after scenarios in each of these three countries is going to be fundamental for mm -hmm. the next generations to come. So thank you for highlighting that. David, you have a couple of questions. Regional response, social backlash created by wave of migrants. And you were also mayor of a municipality in Caracas, and you were in touch with the communities. So tell us a little bit about the education role, too. OK. <clears throat> well, regarding the education, uh, I think it's uh, one of the most important policies that you have to implement, especially when we restore democracy. Venezuela used to have one of the best public education system in the region uh, uh, when we had democracy. 
And as I said in my, in my, my first uh, words, uh, I think that what happened is that we took democracy and freedom for granted. And, and the generations before us did not maybe um, uh, um, embrace that democracy and freedom uh, uh, too much. And Chavez, with a speech against corruption, uh, won. And he has become, as Maduro, the biggest corruption system by far in the in the region and probably the, the one of the most in the modern uh, uh, one of the biggest in the modern uh, uh, history. <clears throat> so when you say the people, um, yeah, obviously both politicians. You say you speak Spanish. We're not Marcianos, you know. <laughs> we're part of we're part of, we're part of civil society. And I started as a student leader, as a, as a member of the civil society. But I think if you do not get if you not get involved on the political parties, if you don't get involved in the leadership, you have the Chavez, you have the Ortegas, you have the Diaz-Canel. So you need to fight inside the political parties and, and refresh the ideas, refresh the vision, and have the new, uh, um, and, and, and new public policies that need to be uh, implemented. And as a major, I had five uh, schools. It was one of the uh, best experiences I had as a major uh, with uh, 1,300 kids. And they were starving because of, of, of a humanitarian crisis. And we were able to feed with the Venezuelan diaspora, with uh, uh, private and public uh, alliances, to feed those kids on, on breakfast and, and lunch, and to improve their, their uh, student uh, environmental with uh, improving the infrastructure, right. transport. Uh, every year they had uh, the books and, and dictionaries and everything that they needed to study. Yeah. It was a huge effort that obviously, because of the crisis, uh, got more difficult, but uh, uh, it was it was it has been always a, 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 a priority. Also, I tackled as a mayor to have to, to see the books and the laptops that were given by the regime with Chavez in the on, mm -hmm. on the cover and everything that we said. Oh, we're not using this. Um, I understood one of your two questions. I think uh, if you have any initiative on the uh, xenophobia, um, more than welcome to receive it in the OES. Uh, I think the, the xenophobia action, the, the, the rejection of xenophobia has to come from the civil society, local governments, and regional governments, not only national governments. I think xenophobia is uh, located, it's not the majority, not, not the majority of Venezuelans are not suffering from xenophobia, but when it's an, when, when some, when, but when, it's an, when, it, when it is an, a xenophobia act, obviously there is a lot of in the news, like what happened in Brazil in August, I went there a week after that thing happened. But uh, um, but I, we need to eradicate any any uh, xenophobia uh, um, manifestation. So if there are any initiative in the George Washington University, more than welcome to receive it in the in the OES. We're working with a lot of lo local governments in Ecuador, in Peru, in Colombia to promote actions against uh, xenophobia, to promote policies against uh, uh, xenophobia. And Venezuela was a country that for decades opened its arm to many Latin Americans. Now, it's, I think, is the moment that Latin Americans uh, receive us uh, because we're not, we're not fleeing the country because we won. We're doing against our will. And you said about the Islamic terrorist. Uh, this is a topic that uh, it's, uh, I always try to be very responsible when I talk to have the evidences of that. Uh, but I wouldn't be surprised at the end of the day if Venezuela supports terrorists or not. Well, you have the Colectivos Armados, you have the Megabandas, right. you have El LN, you have El FBL, you have the FARC. So you don't necessarily need to have the Islamist terrorists in Venezuela to have a regime that is linked or that is, is uh, supporting uh, uh, terrorist groups because we have it in, in, in Colombia. Thank you, David.
Miriam, you have the last question. Um, I think it's related to data that I'm not sure if you have uh, how many millions of barrels are flowing into Cuba right now? Yeah, no, I, I mean, uh, of course, as, as you perfectly know, well, uh, Frank, uh, thank you for your question. Um, the, uh, there's a lot of information that is sim simply not available. Mm -hmm. But I think one thing that is very telling is that uh, recently there was some scandalous information in the news that despite, despite the dire situation in Venezuela, despite the fact that Venezuela is only producing 1.1 million barrels of oil a day when while when uh, Chavez arrived, the production was around 3.5 million barrels, that Venezuela is importing uh, gasoline because the refineries in Venezuela are in a, uh, producing an extremely low capacity. Some of the largest refineries in Latin America, are, some are just, in, as I said, in a minimum production, that despite the, the needs of the Venezuelan people that are spending hours, long hours, eight hours, 10 hours just to buy gasoline in an oil producing country, that Venezuela is exporting that gasoline that is in, importing from the US or other places, it's in, in exporting it back to Cuba. So for the Venezuelan government, there's no dif differentiation between the Cuban government and the Venezuelan government, mm -hmm. the Cuban people and the Venezuelan people. For them, the Cuban government and the needs of the Cuban government are as if they were the needs of the Venezuelan government. And some, some, in some instances, even more, the, the priority is higher in terms of taking care of the Cuban government, the Cuban regime, than to uh, uh, you know, taking care of their own people, of Venezuelans. And the ties between both countries are very, very intense. Uh, uh, they encompass a large uh, sectors, uh, including mainly security, intelligence, but it's also the Venezuelan government has taken on itself it, the, uh, as a responsibility to support the, the development plans of the Cuban government. However, uh, the, as far as I understand, the Cuban economy has suffered significantly from the lack of uh, this massive inflow of resources that used to come from Venezuela. But even in this very dire situation, Cuba remains a priority, maybe in a lesser, with lesser capacity mm -hmm. to provide the massive inflows, which I, I mean, at some point it was 110 million barrels of oil per day. Uh, some figures I've read recently are talking about 50 million barrels per day. I don't know how accurate those are. But uh, just the message is that even in, these, in this very dire situation, Cuba remains a priority for the Venezuelan government. This has been a fascinating panel. Thank you so much for being. I think one of the main conclusions here is that doing nothing has tremendous consequences. So we need to be all engaged on these three crises in the hemisphere as much as possible moving forward. So thank you for being here. Thank you to the three speakers. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for. Thank you.